Box 13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie, The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know, this business I'm in can get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this morning. OCR Rock. And now, here is OCR Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob welcoming you to another edition of Movie Star Detectives and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. <laughs> and I hope you're enjoying the sound of my fan <laughs> because it's getting hot. And I'm wearing a fan. I just thought I would throw that in before I get back to introducing the episode. And it's just a non sequitur I just threw in just now. I actually didn't mean that I'm wearing the fan. I'm using the fan. I can't wear a fan. What am I talking about? I don't know. Get back to the introduction, Rob. So enjoy what's coming after. I was just talking to my cat before I came up to the microphone. She usually leaves when I start announcing shows. So, um, she's a critic, but not in the harsh sense. She just doesn't know what I, and doesn't understand what I'm doing. Talking officially out loud, and not to her. So, she may be a little wounded because I'm not talking to her right now, but anyway, she gets used to it. She has a parent who does stuff over the internet radio type stuff so she gets used to it anyway this Richard Diamond private detective <laughs> comes from April 12th 1950 this is an episode entitled the man who hated women this is quite disturbing 
and uh, please don't have the little ones present when uh, you play this episode. It is quite disturbing, and uh, literally there is a man who has a vendetta against women. And then after that is The Lives of Harry Lyme from December 28th, 1951. The episode is Two is Company. I thought Three is Company. Oh no, that's a comedy series. Never mind. And I have a suspense episode that was not dated. I had to, had to research it. And it's from March 30th, 1943. And it stars Lee Bowman. In this suspense episode of The Saint. And the Saint episode for suspense is entitled The Dead Sleep Lightly. And Richard Bowman was, well, I'll get to Richard Bowman when we get to the episode. And I'll tell you all about Richard Bowman. A very likable guy, a guy I liked a lot and during the war years watching his various roles. All quite good. And doing some leading man stuff as well during the war years. You know, he kind of picked up the slack for other folks who were off the war. Anyway, I'll get back to Lee Bowman after that. And then <clears throat> we have Losing My Voice, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from March 19th, 1949. The episode is entitled Dancing Hands. Very sexy kind of episode. And then Box 13, this episode also was not dated, which I found the date too. I hate lazy collectors that don't bother to put the dates down. Anyway, it's from March 5th, 1948. The episode is entitled The Professor and the Puzzle. And then we have Evan Costello and a Sam Shovel episode from February 3rd. 1949 the episode is entitled he committed chop suicide I, I didn't make that up I didn't write that stuff I swear I anyway by the way just so for your edification chop suey is not a real Chinese dish it was an it was an Americanized name that came along in the 1930s when Chinese food became popular among white folk and especially the rich and they invented something called that sounded Chinese called chop suey it was basically a conglomeration of really a lot of American vegetables and Americanized meat and stuff like that and they called it chop suey and they just poured a little soy sauce on it and they thought they were eating real Chinese food. But they weren't. And Chop Suey is still with us today, although not so much. Now you can get real authentic Chinese food in good Chinese restaurants and I recommend everyone when you decide to go out that you uh, go to a Chinese restaurant and enjoy a good, decent Chinese food. You will not regret it. And uh, anyway, enjoy all of these episodes and go out and get your vaccination because it will get back to normal and no one will have to wear a mask. But if you don't get your vaccination, people could die. So get your vaccination, protect your community, don't be a fool. Do it. Be smart. Get a vaccination. All right. I love you. God willing, and the creeks don't rise. 
and enjoy all of these episodes. And I'll see you all back here next week, whether you want me to or not. Broadcasting Company presents Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Hey, Ed. Huh? Stop the car a second, will you? What for? I thought I saw something lying back there by the road. So what? It's probably a dead dog. No, no, hold it. It's too big to be a dog. Oh, for Pete's sake. Uh, where is it? It's uh, right over there. Oh, oh, yeah. Come on. Holy cow. Yeah. She dead. Oh. Oh, I think I'm going to be sick. Mm-hmm. Me too. Let's go call the cops. Here's another exciting half hour with Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Diamond Detective Agency, if there's a corpse in your cellar and your nerves are a wreck, oh, Rick to the rescue if you write him a check. Oh, I'm going to do with you. Can I make a suggestion? Please do. Feed me regularly, take me for walks, and be sure that you let me out nights. Some suggestion. You do that for a cat. <laughs> Hi, Helen. Hi. How are you? No, I don't know. I think I'm a nervous wreck. What from? You remember when you said I ought to take up something to keep me busy in the office? Yes. You remember you mentioned knitting? Oh, no. Oh, yes. I've dropped more stitches than a cross-eyed surgeon. <laughs> You idiot, I was only fooling. Well, don't laugh. I was making Francis a pair of screaming argyles. Keep with it, Strongheart. You'll win out. Yeah, you're darn right I will. Oh, what I said. Darn. Get it? Ellen, are you still there? Yes, Rick. Wasn't funny? No, Rick. Okay, come on over, let's neck. Yes, Rick. Shame on you. Yes, Rick. I'll see you about eight. Oh. You don't sound very happy. That's such a long way off. Give you time to make plans. Bye. Bye. Hmm. Now, let's see. i got to take out one, two, three, five rows. Oh. Yeah, what is it? Rick? Oh, how are you, Walt? Very unhappy. You should see me. I've got to take out five whole rows just to pick up one lousy stitch. What? Oh, forget it. What are you unhappy about? I'll tell you about it when you get down here. Well, the 5th Precinct's 20 blocks. Can't you give it to me over the pipe? I wouldn't ask you if it wasn't important, and I'd rather not say anything over the phone. Okay, okay. Stop making like life-facing Porsche. I'll be down as soon as I finish this heel. Heel? Yeah. If you must know, I've taken up knitting. Coming from you, I am unmoved. I don't care if you're building side. You notice a fur-lined money belt. Get down here as fast as you can. All right, Walt. But you'll be sorry when it starts getting cold again. And I won't knit your sweater to cover your rural blueberry. Oh, now you get over here. Bye, Walt. Getting Walt's goat was a sport with me. 
Whether he'd admit it or not, he got a kick out of it, too. Sometimes I wouldn't stay on the rib as long as I usually do, but that was only because Wald always starts sounding just a little bit worried. Then I know it's time to lay off and get serious. Now, don't misunderstand me. I never lay off entirely. And I never get completely serious. Those are two habits that don't help find the solution any quicker. They just fit you with a mess of ulcers, and you still end up too worried and too serious. I closed my office and headed for Walt's precinct. When I walked in, I spotted Sergeant Otis leaning back in his chair with his number 12s resting on the desk. Oh, hello, Sergeant Otis. Well, how's the big private detective today? Just fine, Otis. How's the flash of the 5th precinct? Just fine, Diamond. How's the big private detective today? You said that. I did? Yeah. Is the lieutenant busy? Uh, no, but he's happy. Why spoil it? Otis, when are you going to shine your buttons? What buttons? Oh, oh, excuse me. Gravy stains. Oh. Hiya, Walt. Rick, why don't you leave that poor guy alone? After you leave, he comes running in and cries all over my desk. Otis? Ah, he wouldn't shed a tear if he was standing in an onion warehouse watching his grandmother set fire to herself. Yeah, well, give him a rest for a while. I got a big problem I want to talk to you about. All right, Walt, what's on your mind? Well, I don't know quite how to give it to you. It isn't strictly kosher for the police force to go around asking for help. Now, wait a minute. I don't want any apology routine. If you want a favor, you came to the right boy. You know that goes without saying. Yeah, I guess I do. But now, this is a pretty big favor, Rick. The commissioner's on my back, and so is everyone else. It's got anything to do with this city's government. Oh, sounds rough. What did they do? Find out you were hiding a chimpanzee in a cop's uniform calling him Sergeant Otis? Oh, now be serious for a second, Rick. All right, if you'll just get to the point. All right. I guess you've been reading about these homicides you've been having for the past three weeks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pretty messy. Well, the powers that be say, solve them or turn in my badge. Oh, well, now wait a minute. Don't they know that this is the toughest kind of a killing? The killer's obviously got a lot of screws loose and a maniac doesn't need a motive to kill. Don't those swivel chair bigwigs know that a crime without motive is the toughest job in the world to crack? Sure, sure, they know all that, but the public and the press is yelling its head off, so the pressure's on. Yeah, well, what do you want me for? You've got one of the best departments in the state. When you were on the force, it was the best department in the state. Now you stop that. Then stop twisting my arm. What do you want? I want help. I've got to crack this case by next week or I'm out of my ear. Hmm. You're the best detective we had on the force, and you're the best private gumshoe in the city. Well, now, that's real nice. Will you stop that clowning? Okay, okay. What about these killings? Each time they find some dame looking like the last of a hamburger sale... Excuse me a second, Rick. Yeah? Lieutenant? No, this is Oliver Dragon. What do you want, mallet head? Uh, we just got a report from a guy out in the river road. Another one of them butcher's killings. What? Yeah, some dame all hacked up and lying beside the road. Okay, get the car out. I'll meet you downstairs. Oh, did you hear that, Rick? Uh-huh. Well, come on. You want me along? Of course. I can brief you about the whole setup on the way over. Well, I don't know whether it's such a good idea to get mixed up in this or not. Why not? Well, it looks like anybody who gets close to this killer doesn't have much of a future. Well, you can't live forever. Oh, now, aren't you the sweet one? No, that's not what's worrying me. Well, what is that? Now, when I go out, I want a nice, comfortable place to lie down in. The way this nut goes to work with a knife, I might end up at a meat locker. All right, all right, everybody back. Go on through, Lieutenant. Show them your biceps, Otis. Ah, you comic. How did all these people get out here? This is ten miles from anything. Uh, someone must have heard me call the police. When I left the phone booth, the whole crowd followed me out here. Who are you? 
Uh, my name is Ed Cody. Me and my friend here found the body. Where is it? Uh, right over here, Walter. Uh, how does it look? Uh, the way you thought it would. Now oh, you see what I'm up against, Rick. This is the third killing like this in three weeks. Yeah. Oh, I don't feel too good. Let's walk over this way. Yeah. Cody, you and your friend come along. We'll want to ask some questions. Uh, yeah, okay, Lieutenant. Well, whoever the guy is that's pulling these murders, he's a complete lunatic. Are they all like that, Walt? You should have seen the last one. Hey, uh, how'd you guys happen to spot the body? Well, uh, I saw it first and I told Ed here. Uh, yeah, we were just driving along when Max spotted something lying beside the road. I stopped the car and we got out. When I saw what it was, I left Mac here and went back to town to call you. What's your full name, Mac? Uh, McCarthy. Uh, John McCarthy. Okay. What are you doing, Rick? Oh, looking at the road. That's your car up there, Cody? Uh, it's Max. I was just driving. Now, uh, you, uh, you went ahead how far before you stopped? Well, uh, about 20 yards. You won't find much, Rick, even if the road is soft. Their car and any other one would have blocked out the killer's tracks. Hey, maybe he didn't use a car. Maybe he walked her out this way and then killed her. No, this place is 10 miles from anything. He drove all right. And this crowd has ruined any footprints for sure. Oh, here come the boys. Come on, Rick. As soon as they start examining things, we can get back to the station. Yeah, I want to go through the whole file in the last two killings. You won't find much. A change of reading never hurt anyone. Well, that's the whole mess. No leads at all, huh? Not a one. I'm getting nearsighted from looking at all the lineup. We've picked up everything from drunks to safecrackers. No leads. Same type of crime in every case. This killer's got a crazy streak as wide as Broadway. Wait till the commissioner hears about this one. Well, give me a pencil. Now, tic-tac-toe is out. I got a headache. Stop waving your gills and give me a pencil. Here. What are you doing with that map? Drawing circles. Now, you stop that. That's the scale of this city, and I don't want it loused up by your doodling. Hmm. Look at that. So you make a dandy circle. Well, thanks. What's it for? How should I know? You drew it. Drew what? The circle. Wasn't that a little foolish? Of course it was. That's what I'm yelling about. Well, that's bad for you. What is? Yelling. I know it. I thought you said you didn't know. Know what? About the circle I just drew. What circle? The one on the map. That's what I was yelling about. Well, why? You didn't draw it. I know I didn't. You did. What for? How should I know? You're a policeman. What in blazes has that got to do with it? You were a rookie, weren't you? Of course I was. You worked your way up to sergeant and then head of homicide, didn't you? No, no, very good and well I did. Wasn't it a little tough? You bet it was. I pounded a beat for four long years. I did it by the sweat of my brow. Now, wait a minute. How did we get into this? You asked me about this circle I drew. I did? Yes, Walt, but you didn't know what it was for. Oh, yeah. Well, what is it for? For you. You like it? Yeah, it's not bad. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. You lowlife, you conniving, dirty, underhanded louse. You always do this to me. I think you sit around nights and pull the wings off of flies. Moths. All right, moths. You sit around and dream up little monstrosities to pull on the police force and use me as a... A, a, a... guinea pig. Right, guinea pig. You call me, Lieutenant? No, get out of here, you idiot. Yeah, Lieutenant. Diamond, for once I'm going to find out what's at the end of this merry-go-round. I want to know about that circle. And I'm going to get it out of you if I have to shove that map down your throat. What was that? Huh? What was that you said, Nevison? This is the commissioner. Oh, not, not, not you, commissioner. Hey, and I can't have any of these killings. Yes, commissioner. I want you to put on more pressure. Yes, commissioner. What have you done about the latest thing? Well, I just went out and looked at the body. Well, that is my name. Yes, but... This department has been sitting around long enough. Uh, but, but... I'm but, giving you fine, Annie. 
That's it. I'm plenty of it. Uh, but, but, but... Your motor's running. You shut up. Eh? Oh, no, no, Commissioner. Somebody else. All right. But if I don't get some action in the next 24 hours, you're going to be plenty sailing. Yes, sir. Now get busy, Anna, and I'm not kidding. Get there. Yes, sir. Oh. Who was it? I am not talking to you. Don't you want to know about the circle? No. Fine, fine. Well, when I was looking over the reports on the killings, I noticed something. You don't say. Say what? Okay, okay, if you don't want to play. Be a sorehead all your life. Well, I noticed that all of the killings, including the one we looked at this afternoon, were within at least ten miles of each other. And the first one, this one right here, was exactly in the opposite direction from the last one. Bully for you. No, it's, it's nothing, nothing. Well, using the first and last homicide for the edge of the circle, we find that the other killing also falls within the sphere. Okay, so what? Mm-hmm. Getting interested? Well, the girl this afternoon had been dead for about, oh, 14 hours, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but the coroner can come closer. Well, about, anyway. In the other two cases, it says that both girls were killed about 3 in the morning. If the last one was dead 14 hours, she comes close to that time, too. Okay, okay. What does that prove? Not a thing, not a thing. But it's something to go on. This is a wild one, Walt. But let's say that our killer started off with his victim, victim somewhere, uh, oh, within that circle. To drive five miles, half the distance of the circle, it would take him, oh, about... Uh, Fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm, Fifteen minutes. Now, that means he left his starting point around 2.45. That's a funny hour to be so consistent. You're right. Bars close at 2, 45 minutes to talk a dame into a ride. Mm, might be. Well, I'll be done. I may be all wet. The killer probably started from somewhere outside the circle. But we can start by eliminating the idea of the night spots anyway. Yeah, Lieutenant. Send out a 508 and get everybody in here. I want to check on all the night spots from... Uh... 45th Street and Broadway, the center of the circle. From 45th Street and Broadway for 10 miles in every direction. Yeah, Lieutenant. Now, that means cafes, bars, bowling alleys, anything that stays open until 2 or after, and step on it. Uh, I hope we're right. So do I. I don't like walking on eggs. Then sit down. Who knows? You might hatch something. NBC is bringing you Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Walt found out the name of the last victim and the family supplied us with the picture. Her name is Martha Kirk. And they knew nothing of her whereabouts the night of the murder. You can't really appreciate a police department until you really see them in action. Inside of two hours, Walt had every dive, bar, and night spot in the ten-mile circle tag. They spread out, one man to every five blocks, each with a picture of the three murdered girls. Because it had been my idea, Walt wanted me to swim with it and maybe sink. I took a little section from 48th Street to 46th Street, and by late afternoon, I'd covered most of the likely prospects. Yeah, you guessed it. The bottom of the barrel was coming up fast, and it was emptier than a ballpark during a thunderstorm. No one had ever seen the three victims. The last spot on the list was a bowling alley. I walked in and spotted a cocktail lounge, and when I climbed up on one of the stools, a bartender with a head that should have been out on the alleys walked up to me. Yeah, what'll it be? Oh, how about a glass of milk? Glass of milk? Think you can stand it? Well, if you're worried, water it a little. I don't want to pass out on you. <laughs> I get him. He made him funny. <laughs> so did your family. You're looking for trouble? Only if I get pushed. I'm looking for information. Uh, first door on the left. Yeah. Yeah. Ever seen uh, any of these girls before? What are you, a cop? Well, let's just say I'm nosy. And I've got a badge to keep me in the spirit of things. Oh, why didn't you say so? Uh... 
Uh, let me see. All right. Here's the first one. Uh, no, 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 no. I never seen her. How about this one? Uh-uh. And this one? Yeah. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sure, I know. This one comes in about twice a week. Was in last night. Gets lushed up and cries about how tough a family is on him. Uh, let's see, her name is... Uh, Kirk? Bab- yeah, yeah, Martha. Martha Kirk. Nice looker. She was. Huh? Did she ever come in here with a man? No, but sometimes she leaves with one. Huh? Same guy every time? Nah. Do you remember her leaving with a man last night? Hey, yeah. Come to think of it, she did. What time? About 2.15. We stopped serving at 2. Right on the dot, that we do. Oh, yeah. that you do, yeah. Okay. Think you'd know the guy if you saw him again? Sure, he comes in a couple times a week, too. I seen him pick up a couple of strays. <laughs> I guess you call him a wolf. Yeah, with a hatchet. Huh? Forget it. Where's your phone? Uh, right over there. Uh, hey, here. Use a slug. It's on the house, officer. Thanks. I hope nothing's happened to Martha. She was a rotten drunk for the one of them. Yeah. Well, she was, huh? Mm. Sergeant Otis, at your service. If you're in trouble, you probably deserve us. Oh, that's awful. Okay, Diamond, you don't have to get nasty. Shut up and get me the lieutenant. One moment, please. Lieutenant Levinson. You can forget about retiring, Walt. You got something? Yeah, it looks like. What did your boys turn up? Nothing yet. What is it, Rick? Don't play games now. Get over to the 47th, uh, 47th and 9th. You know the bowling alley in the middle of the block? I'm in the bar. Want me to bring the boys? No, no, no. This is one we've got to play quietly. I don't want to scare our ghoul off. I'll be right down. Hey, uh, bartender, what about that milk? Oh, 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 yeah, coming up. Uh, hey, uh, is it going to be a pinch? There is, Buster. There certainly is. Walt romped in about a half an hour later, and he talked with the bartender. He finally looked satisfied. He had to, because it was the only lead that had turned up. We told the bartender to tip us if the guy showed again, and we sat down to wait. Maybe my rabbit's foot started thinking it was back with a quartet because around one o'clock it started kicking. The bartender gave us a nod just as a big guy wandered in and sat down at the bar. He weighed in at about 2.20, and his clothes were sloppy. He ordered a drink and started eyeing a cute little number sitting at the other end of the bar. Let's take him. Now, hold it, Walt. He's making a pitch. What? The dame at the end of the bar. So he's making a pitch. What do you want him to do? Wait around till he takes her out of here? Maybe you'd like to help him sharpen his axe. Look, you haul him in now, you'll have to beat it out of him. You want him to pick the dame up? Is that against the law? Arrest me. Stop your clowning. You'd rather catch him with the goods, wouldn't you? Yeah, but now don't start that again. You butted the commission to the death. Just relax. Maybe you can pick up a few pointers. Our big boy moved, all right. Right up to the seat next to the cute little girl. She was under full sail and didn't seem to mind at all. He landed at 1.15. At 1.30, he'd established a firm beachhead. And by 2 o'clock, there was a flag raising. Okay, he scored. The joint's closing. I'm believing I'm going to tail him. How? He's probably got a car. He'd spot you sure if he takes her out to some lonely place. Uh, how do I know? You put in a call, throw a dragnet around this area for 10 miles. I'm not going to let you. If he gets away with that girl, he may kill her. Look, Walt, I promise you, he won't get into that car unless I can stick with him. Come on, we'll both stick close to him until I can think of something. We followed the man and girl outside and walked a few yards behind, making like we had a little load on. They headed for a big parking lot, and that's when I got the idea. 
The parking attendant was just walking up to him when I stumbled forward. Hey, uh, boy, boy. Rick, what are you doing? Stay with me, Walt. Yeah, mister? Sonny, I'd, I'd like to have an automobile first. Hey, just a minute. I was here first. Sure, honey. Don't let him get away with it. Yeah. Well, look, old man. You, my, my, my friend here is late getting home, and he's got a wife that's ten feet tall. You mind if I get my car first? <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. Someday! No, relax, honey, relax. We're going to take a little drive. Huh? Yeah. Okay, mister, let's see your ticket. <laughs> well, I got it here. Some place right in my pocket. Come on, we'll walk up. I, I know where the car is. Okay, but you got to have a ticket. Rick, what's going on? Keep walking. Hey, hey, I thought you was loaded. Keep going with the police. You what? That's right. Well, what's wrong? Which one is that guy's car? You mean the guy back there with the dame? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he gave me his ticket. Oh, it's right over there, the coupe. Rick, come on. I'm going to climb in that trunk, and you're going to get in your car and tail us. But stay far enough behind so that he doesn't spot you. Okay, but I think you're crazy. Is the trunk open? Yeah, I'll get going. Well, they'll see me coming back. Well, then tell him you forgot something in the bowling alley. I passed out in my car. All right. And, uh, son. Yeah? Don't let on that anything happened. We think that man is a killer. Oh. I squeezed into the trunk and waited. About two minutes later, the lovebird showed up and got in the front seat. Oh, very, very much. I rode like that for about 15 minutes, and it wasn't bad until we hit the dirt road. Then my inside started bouncing around like a pound of rice in a wind tunnel. We drove for about 10 minutes more and came to a stop. Oh. I raised the trunk just enough get some fresh air and listen. I didn't want to climb out because they'd feel the movement up in front. I was sure they could hear my breathing. Oh. What are we stopping for? <laughs> I, uh, I thought maybe that... Uh, huh? I wanted to look at the pretty scenery. Well, how can you? Uh-huh. So dark. Uh, Pretty low. I can see you, baby. Can? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> You're nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So are you. It went on like that for another five minutes, and I started thinking I'd picked the wrong guy. Then the conversation changed. <laughs> What's the matter? What's <laughs> so funny? Don't you know? No, and I don't like the way you're acting. Women. That's what's funny. All the same. Huh? Like my wife. She was like all the other women. Hey, let's get out of here. You're talking funny. Funny, yeah. See a man and you like him, any man. You're all alike. Now you stop that. I just came along now because... Now, come here. No! You let me go. You ain't no different. Come no! here. No! Stop that! Let me get out of the car. Sure. Go ahead. I don't want no blood stains on the seats anyway. Blood! Go on, run. I'll catch you. I rolled out and didn't forget to take my 38 along. I spotted him in the moonlight, moving after her like a big animal. He was laughing. I could see he had something in his hand. It was a knife. She tripped and fell, and he moved in. Gave me goosebumps bigger than a grapefruit. When he was nearly on top of her, I closed in. Okay, hold it, hold it. What? No, no. Drop the knife. I'll kill 
You all right? Take it easy. It's all over. It's all over. Are you sure you're all right, honey? You know something? No, what? I think that man is Mr. Diamond. Good evening, Francis. Is uh, Miss Asher in? Yes, sir. She's in the study, knitting. Knitting? Knitting. Hmm. Thank you, Francis. Knit one, purl two. Knit one, purl two. Knit one, purl two. Drop three. That's the way I do it. Rick. Hello, baby. Oh, look what I've gotten into. I'm a nervous wreck. I'll never teach you. What are you building? It was going to be a surprise for you. Oh, a whole suit. <laughs> Silly. Rick, I'll get it. Hello? Uh, Helen, is Rick there? Oh, just a minute. It's Walt, Rick. Oh, well, give me that phone. Where are you? Why didn't you follow me like I told you to? Well, something happened. Well, what happened, you big ox? I could have been killed out there. I'm sorry, but... Uh, Why didn't you follow me? I got caught in the Triborough Bridge and I didn't have a quarter. Why didn't you use your police badge? Holy smoke. Now you tell me. Ricky. Oh, uh, yeah. I need relaxing. You need relaxing? Oh, swell. Ricky. Come here. I know just the thing. No, no, come over here. There's an old spinning wheel in the parlor, spinning dreams of the long, long ago. Ricky. What's the matter, dear? Oh. How about this one? Wilhelmina. Let me start that again, will you? I didn't get started very well. Wilhelmina. She's the cutest little girl in Copenhagen. Wilhelmina. She has all the fellas crazy in the noggin, in Copenhagen. All the roses on her cheeks, and the music when she speaks, and how sweet her kisses taste. Sugar cane is like my mama's Danish pastry. Wilhelmina, maybe soon we'll elope in Copenhagen. Wilhelmina, we'll share everything, including my toboggan. In Copenhagen, all the other girls say no, but Wilhelmina, she says nah. All the boys call Wilhelmina Willie, but I call Wilhelmina mine. Well, no, no, no. How did you like that, huh? Well, it was wonderful, but where did the orchestra come from? Oh, the orchestra? Did you like it? Mm hmm. No, don't knock it. Rick. Mm hmm. I told you I needed relaxing. Oh, well, how's this? Ragmop. Ragmop. Rick. Ragmop. Oh, no, Rick. Ragmop. I started that one right. I got to like that one, too. You can sing later. Oh, well, all right, all right. Now, what is it, little baby? Come here. Hmm. You know something? What? I may never sing again.
You have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Lieutenant Levinson was played by Ed Begley, who soon will be seen in the MGM production, Stars in My Crown. Also in the cast were Virginia Delvay, Wilms Herbert, Lorene Tuttle, Bill Conrad, Peter Leeds, and Jack Crucian. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Tonight's show was written by Blake Edwards and directed by Warren Lewis. Dick Powell currently may be seen in the motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. Look for the private life story of Dick Powell, Pie Face and the Private Eye, in the May issue of Movie Stars Parade on your newsstands now. This is Eddie King inviting you to be with us next Wednesday at this same time, when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Dimension X. From the annals of science fiction, a new radio series about men and science and a future destiny. Saturday on NBC, here, Dimension X. Dick Powell and June Allison tomorrow on Screen Guild Theater on NBC. Orson Welles as the third man. The lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man with zither music by Anton Karras. Italy, my children, as you probably know, is shaped like a boot. Beneath the boot is Sicily. And that's where I was when our story begins. Very much as though the boot had kicked me there is very much what happened. I suppose that Sicily is really as nice as the travel posters say, but I didn't have much of a chance to check up on it during my stay. I was too busy running away. Of course, I got a glance at the snow-capped tip of Etna for a moment, and I saw the orange groves. I must have run through and dodged around most of the orange groves. Very lovely, of course. So Sicily... But like the man said about California, it's a wonderful place if you're an orange. In today's story, Two is Company. Hello. Hello. Can I buy 
buy you a drink? No, why not? Bartender. Signore? What'll it be, Mr. Lynn? Uh, Negroni. What's that? Made with gin. It's an Italian specialty. Bartender, give us two of those specialties. Uh, due Negroni, please. Your life should be told. Sorry, old man. You seem to know my name, but what's yours? Porter at the hotel was telling me about you. Call me Gus. You seem better, old man. That's what I am, Harry. I can call you Harry, can't I? Please do. Does the porter being one of these fantasists mean that you aren't a crook? So, well, a crook is a sort of an unpleasant word. So is fantasist. Well, since you ask me, Gus, I'm a gentleman adventurer. I didn't ask you. Give us a couple more of those specialties, bartender. Uh, where are you from, Gus? Indianapolis. You ever been in love? No, no, not particularly. What line of business are you in? I'm in love. But that's not a line of business. Did you ever hear of Schmidt's Luxury Markets? No. There's a Schmidt Luxury Market in your community. In every community. We have the biggest chain of super grocery stores in the States. And you are Mr. Schmidt? That's Adolf Schmidt. He's Mr. Schmidt. I'm Augustus Schmidt III. But I'm vice president in charge of wholesale groceries. Is that good? What do you mean, good? Just looking at I mean, are you loaded with money? I ask merely for information. I can buy and sell her, old man. Well, who's her old man? Hickenlooper. I beg your pardon? Hickenlooper. Now hold your breath, old man, and count to ten. Well, if you never heard of Schmidt's luxury markets, then I don't suppose you ever heard of Hickenlooper's super grocery. And I eat out. Encore, per favore. What does that mean? Hey, you're not trying to get me drunk, oh, are you? Of course not. Well, I am. Uh, you mentioned a her, Gus. Forgive my curiosity, but is the her a Hickenlooper? Yeah, she's the Hickenlooper heiress. Mm, sort of Montague and Capulet story, I gather. What's a Capulet? Juliet's family. You know Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I know. I gather the Schmitz and the Hickenloopers are feuding. Adolf Schmidt takes a dim view of the Hickenlooper empire, and that's what's keeping you apart. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're wrong. Oh. The Schmitz and the Hickenloopers are all in favor of the merger. Would be the biggest thing in groceries. That is, all the Hickenloopers are in favor but one. You mean the heiress? That's right. Emily. She says the grocery business isn't romantic. And uh, how are you dealing with the situation, Gus, old man? Have you told your love or have you let concealment, like a worm i' the bud, feed on your damask cheek? What's that? Do you pine in thought and with a green and yellow melancholy sit like patience on a monument, smiling at grief? Yeah, I guess that about sums it up. You're a very educated type crook. I keep telling you, Gus, I am not a crook. Yeah, yeah. And I keep telling Emily I'm not a grocer. Bartender, two double specialties. Later that evening, in a semi-liquid condition, Augustus Schmidt III was consigned to his suite by myself, the bartender, and the night porter. I offered to undress the heirs of the Schmidt millions and make them comfortable, but the porter didn't seem to want to leave me alone in the room. These people will persist in regarding me as a petty thief, and that's so wrong. I think in big terms. I was going to have to. It was the pressing matter of the hotel bill. The management of the Diodora Palace think in big terms also. I went out for a walk to brood over this question. It was a full moon and a large cast of Sicilian stars were all doing their bit. The air was dizzy with the perfume of flowers on the terrace over the sea. Just to make things perfect. That was a beautiful girl. Hello. Hello. Nice night. Ha. What's wrong? Look at that moon. Yeah? Smell those flowers. Okay. Here it is, one of the most gorgeous and beautiful moments that there ever was in the history of the world. And what have you got to say about it? It's a nice night. Well, it is. It is a nice night. You're just like all the other Americans. You're only interested in mundane matters like money and groceries. Why, you're Emily Hickenlooper. How did you know? Oh, I just guessed. You'll have to excuse me for being so rude, but I'm nervous and upset. Oh, no, no, you're just hasty. Well, what do you mean? Jumping at conclusions. For all you know, I might be Lord Byron. Oh, he's dead. I might be his ghost. 
Yes, I suppose you might be. No, but somehow I don't think you are. No? No. I don't think there are any more Byrons or ghosts of Byrons or anything. No? No. Okay, no. The whole world's so commercial nowadays, there isn't any more romance, not even in Sicily. Is that why you left Indianapolis? Were you looking for romance? I didn't leave Indianapolis. I left Minneapolis. That's right. Gus is from Indianapolis. Yes. He can go back there for all of me. You've made Gus a very unhappy man, Emily. Unhappy? Mm. He doesn't know the meaning of the word. There's no unhappiness in the grocery business. And supposing there's a failure in the pea crop. Supposing the asparagus withers at the asparagus cans or the frozen food doesn't freeze or was yet. Suppose you're a nice young grocer, a good-looking grocer at that, and your girl refuses to love you. Oh, I love him, I guess. Well, that isn't the point. What's your name? Araldo Limo. You mean you're a Sicilian? Got an American accent. I went to finishing school in New Jersey. You're joking. Only a little bit, but I do think it's a shame for a girl as pretty as you are to be as miserable as you are on a night as wonderful as this is. You think if I kissed you, you could learn to love Gus. Well, now, don't get fresh. That's not fresh. It's romantic. Is it? Well, it's all in the point of view. Emily Hickenlooper, I'm going to kiss you. Good night, Mr. Limo. It was very nice meeting you, I'm well, you sure. You better let me walk back with you. Oh, well, no thanks, Mr. Limo. I'd rather be alone. Call me Araldo. All right. Good night, Araldo. Uh, what does your mother think about your wandering around alone in the Sicilian countryside after midnight? Oh, my mother's in Minneapolis, and Daddy's playing canastra in the lounge. He thinks I'm in bed. Well, that's where you ought to be. Don't you know that this country is full of bandits and brigands? Oh, yes, Harold. I've heard about them. Where are they? All over the place. Oh, I've been reading about them in the papers, particularly yeah. this Sabarzini. Is that how you pronounce oh, it? Sabarzini, that's oh, right. Oh, I saw his picture on the cover of Life. He's cute. The police don't think he's so cute, neither do his victims. Oh, he kidnaps people, doesn't mm, he? Holds them for ransom. Oh. Emily, what's wrong? Gee, some people have all the luck. <laughs> In spite of her protests, I walked Emily back to the hotel, and in spite of my protests, I didn't get another kiss. But I told you the night was fine and the moon was full, so I went to my room, changed into a pair of heavy walking shoes, and then started hiking into the interior. After three hours and a half of tough climbing, I arrived at the secret mountain headquarters of the bandit Barzini. What's going on here? Hi, Barzini. Who is this, Harry Lyon? Who else? I heard Guido telling you I was asleep. He's a dog. He lies. Barzini never sleeps. Bad for the health, old man. What are you doing here? Partaking of your famous Sicilian hospitality. A bottle of wine, Guido. Tell the others to keep away. Now then, Lyon, what's your business? Aren't you taking an awfully sharp tone with me, Barzini, old man? The last time we talked, everything's on a very different level. The last time we talked, I was drunk. But what you say is true, my friend. My greeting has not been cordial. But then what can you expect? I'm a bundle of nerves. I think you would be with all the cops in southern Italy beating the bushes it for you. It is not that I am a coward. He who calls Barzini a coward has told his last lie. You do not call Barzini a coward. Oh, no, 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 not at all, man. I was just sympathizing. I, I can see why you'd be so nervous. Nervous yeah. is not the word. You will not believe this line, but I, Barzini, I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And it's not the police, my friend. Oh, no. It's the women. Which women? Ah, line, that is what I want to know. Which women, indeed? I am the king of these mountains. I and my valiant crew. But of what does this crew consist? Does it consist of women? The answer is not. Well, you have your work. We are a hot-blooded race, we Sicilians. It is not a thing you Americans can understand. But without female society, we are not ourselves. We have our guitars and our wine, but... But what use are they except to make us sad? You have the wine? Come, line. Let us be sad together. I will play for you, and then we'll talk about girls. Who's 
sent her a letter, she would send me a photo. Oh, sure, she would, old man. Well, here's looking at it. Oh, but she would not sign it herself. I know. It would be one of those secretaries. Life is very sad, amigo. I will see. No, no, please don't bother. No, no, no I... it is no bother at all. Well, it's, uh... Nella notte scura, quando dormire non potei. You know something, Lime? I have a pair of binoculars. Well, that's nice. I took them from a rich pig of a Palermo candy merchant. They are very powerful, and occasionally when the visibility is good, I can stand on the crest of this mountain and see the girls bathing on the beach at Armina. Uh, do you like these bikinis, Lime, or do you prefer the one piece? Well, it all depends. Me, I like the bikinis. You're, you're very popular with the girls, Barzini, since your picture got in the papers. Of course I'm popular with the girls, but also I'm popular with the police. This is a dog's life, I'm not I will think of it. Excuse me for interrupting. Uh, you do not like my singing? Uh, you have a lovely tenor voice, old man, but I want to make you a proposition. Uh, the American business, business, there's nothing else you can think This has to do with the good. Ah, uh, yes? Ah, uh, yes, indeed. How do you stand on the matter of small, well-formed blondes with large blue eyes? Oh. What does that mean? What do you think it means? You approve of such blonde. Stop torturing me, lying. What is this all about? I must warn you that she's an American. Well, Betty Grable. Well, I hope to be acting as her representative. Uh, not Betty Grable, this other girl. Uh -huh. She's the heiress of the Hickenlooper grocery fortune, which is another way of saying that she's rich beyond the dreams of avarice and wants to be kidnapped. She has told you this? No, but that's what I've gathered. Lead me to her. She lives at the Adora Hotel with her father, Mr. Hickenlooper, so I don't think that would be very practical. Besides, there's a cordon of police around the town. I laugh at the police. I will die happily fighting my way to her side. What is her name? I just told you, Hickenlooper. Now, there's the matter of the ransom. Who waved the ransom? Money is no offer. All right, then. You just play your guitar, old man. I'll arrange everything. Just to keep the kidnapping on a professional basis, I'm going to have to hold out for my percentage. There you go again. Money, money, no, no, money. No, no, don't be unreasonable, old man. After all, you, you've got the brigand business. The Hickenloopers have their groceries, and... I've got to live, don't I? Well, see about that. I beg your pardon? Bring me this blonde and you will leave in your line to a nice old age. But do not disappoint me. Uh, yes, I see what you mean, old man. I see what you mean. returns in just a moment as the third man. with today's story, Two is Company. It was a long walk back 
to town, and the hot Sicilian sun was already in full charge, I think, when I got to the hotel. I was so tired that if the hall porter had pointed at me, I think it would have burst into tears. I didn't give him a chance, you know, being that little question of the hotel bill. So I let myself in by the back and made my way to Gus's room. I thought I felt lousy, but not after I got a look at Gus. Birdie with a yellow bill hopped up on my windowsill. Oh, got his shining head and it? said, ain't you ashamed to sleepy head? Please go away. I just want to die. Now, after we talk a little business, Gus, arise, arise, for morning in the bowl of night has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. This is no time for poetry. Well, if you don't get up right away, I'll start singing again. All right, all right. I'll, I'll get up. I'll get up. Uh, want any help? Oh, no, no. Just sit down and stop rocking the room. I hate to break in on this, Gus, old man, but I've got a proposition. What would you say if Emily is kidnapped? Kidnapped, mm. Emily? That's right. Well, just bring me a cup of coffee. Kidnapped by a Sicilian brigand. Well, Sicilian brigand? Yeah. What is this? What's the big idea? Emily's always wanted you to be a hero, hasn't she? Well, this is your big chance, Gus, my lad. You want to be a hero, don't you? You're going to rescue Emily from the bandit's lair. You're kidding. No, I'm not. You mean she really is kidnapped? That's what she thinks. That's what old man Hickenlooper is going to think when he gets the ransom note that you and I know better, hmm? Yeah? The ransom note is supposed to come from Bazzini. You know who he is, don't you? You mean the yes, bandit? Uh, the bandit. We've got our own private bandit. I've hired an Italian actor to play the part. You mean it's a fake? The idea is for you to go to a rescue with a blank cartridge pistol. Our actors put up a convincing fight, but you overwhelm them very bravely, just like Errol Flynn. Our trained bandits take their dives, and away you go into the sunset with Emily... Boy, what do you get out of it? Just the fun of bringing two young people together, old man. Plus my percentage. After I got Gus fully dressed, I gave him a toy pistol and a fountain pen. The fountain pen was to write me a check with, and the gun was to keep him company where he was going. I waited for him to get out of sight and for the check to dry. Then I knocked on Emily's door. Geraldo Limo. Go away, Mr. Limo. I'm not sure. But, Signorina, I insist. Oh, go where? I'll call the house detective. In Sicily, there aren't any house detectives. Well, then I'll start screaming. Save that for later, Emily. Please open up. This is a matter of life and death. You're just saying that. No, it's true. It's about Gus, Emily. He's in deadly peril. What kind of peril? Deadly. I mean, what's happened to him? He's been kidnapped. Please let me in, Emily. I can't stand here in the hall shouting about it. Everybody will hear. Well, stop shouting. Wait a minute while I get dressed. Just put on a kimono, honey. There's no time to spare. Oh, all right. Oh, Geraldo, is it true? Yes, yes. It seems he got drunk last night. He told me he was going well, to. Well, he made it. Can I come in? I suppose so. Thank you, sir. Geraldo, do you have to lock the door? Emily, you just don't understand about this country. You've heard of the mafia, haven't you? Yes. Well, their spies are oh, everywhere. Have you gone to the police? No use. The police are in on it, too. I'm the only man you can trust. Take this. What is it? It's a fountain pen. What will that do? Well, you can't write a check without it. How much are they asking? How much is he worth? Oh, Geraldo, anything. Well, shall we say 10000 All right. Well, wait a minute till I get my check. Let's say 15000 Well, here it is. Well, what did you say, Geraldo? I said 20000 It's a nice round sum. Yes, but, but just now. Well, we don't want Bartini to get angry, Emily, and you know what he does when he's angry. No, what does he do? It's not for woman's ears. Uh, but speaking of ears, Emily, you wouldn't like to get one of Gus's EOD. Bazzini has a way of cutting off an ear at the dotted line and sending it along to the folks at home. That's when he thinks the ransom money isn't enough. What do you want, Emily? Gus or Gus's ear? I want Gus. Well, then make it 25000 payable to Harry Lyme. Harry Lyme? Well, who's he, Geraldo? Oh, just a man I know, a sort of a go-between. But can we trust him? Harry Lyme is the best friend I have in this world. <laughs> Do we have to go, Geraldo? 
the end of the line, Emily, as far as this piece concerned. From here on up, you've got to walk. Loan me a pocket mirror, will you? What for? I'm going to send a signal. Oh, I know. By flashing it in yeah. the sun. Here you are. Thanks. Geraldo. Geraldo. Uh, uh, excuse me. Oh, look. Look, they're answering. Where? Uh, up there on the mountain peak. Well, now what happened? Uh, uh, well, one of us has got to go up there and talk to Bartini. Of course, it would better be me. I couldn't send a woman into a situation like that. No, I, I don't suppose say one so. of us goes up there and the other drives the jeep back to town. Why? That's part of the arrangement. Of course, that road is awfully tricky. Yes, it is. In some places, the drop is over 2,000 feet. What? What's that? Oh, it's uh, just a guitar. Just a guitar. Who's playing? Barzini. He's a strange fellow, you know, very romantic. Looks like his pictures, too. Uh, you better get going now. Geraldo. Yes, Emily. I don't know how to drive a jeep. Not very well. That's okay. I can teach you a little bit. You're well, you know what I think, Geraldo? I think on the whole it might be better if you drove the jeep. And leave you alone with Batsini? Emily, you don't know what these Sicilians are like. Particularly Batsini. You go back into town, Geraldo. I think I can handle it. I drove the jeep back by the other road, the easy way, and paid a call on the Silicon Loop. I found him in the ocean trying to spear fish. When I told him that his daughter was kidnapped, he almost skewered me. Mr. Hickenhooper was the small, fat, excitable type, and it wasn't until I got the fish spear out of his hands that I managed to get the conversation on a civilized plane. Kidnapped my daughter in the hands of the bandits? I knew it. We should have stayed in Minneapolis. What do we do now? Well, first you better take off those goggles and get dressed. And then what? Then what? Then we talk to Bartini. Who's he? Bartini, the bandit. We've been all over this before, Mr. Hickenhooper. He's the one who's holding your daughter for ransom. Just leave me to him. That's all I ask. Just leave me to him. And then we'll see who's holding who and who pays. On the other side of Catania, and some 80 kilometers inland, there's a Greek temple. It's nothing very remarkable as Greek temples go. It's a long way from anything else. It's up on a hill, so you can't miss it. So that's why I picked it for a rendezvous. Above all, it was about as distant as I could get from Signor Bazzini. So that made it practically ideal. That's where I'd sent Gus before. And when Mr. Hickenhooper and I arrived in my Jeep, the vice president of wholesale groceries for Schmidt's Luxury Markets, had worked himself up into quite a nasty frame of mind. I didn't blame him. After all, he'd been there most of the day with nothing to keep him company but the worst hangover of the century. Where is she? That's what I want to know. I brought you some beer, Gus. Give it to me. Then tell me where she is. So this is the bandit's lair, Augustus. This temple is where they hang out. No, they don't. I mean, no, it isn't. Give me that beer. Don't you want to open it first? I'll open it with my teeth. You'll scratch your porcelain. You mean there aren't any bandits? Not around here. Oh, there will be. Don't you fret. After all, we've got plenty of sandwiches and beer. We're just going to have to make ourselves comfortable and wait. Since we're about it, I noticed that I, I just happened to have some playing cards in my pocket. Would you gentlemen care to join me in a slight game of canasta? It was a long wait. That's what I wanted. That's why I brought the provisions and the sleeping bags. It was my plan to run up the ransom money, and that needed time. Meanwhile, a nice steady profit was coming in from the canasta. That's fifteen hundred more I owe you. That's tough luck, old man. Yeah, I'm sorry I can't give you another check. Why not? I've run out of checks. Well, if I don't hear something from that bandit by morning, I'm going to do something. Just so, man, be reasonable. What can we do but wait? Look, a red three. Well, this can't go on forever, Harry. Not if you've run out of checks. I mean, suppose he's killed. Him. Well, don't worry. They never do that. Well, what do they do, Harry? Why don't you answer? Well, fellas, I, I just don't know what to say. Remember, these bandits are savages. They stop at nothing. Well, look, I got another canasta. Now, I'll tell you what. 
I'll go into Catania and try to make some connections with the mafia. Maybe maybe if we send a little more money. I tell you, uh, I haven't any more checks. But you have got some more money, old man. Lots of it. Now I think of it, it just happens I have some blank checks here in my pocket. Make out another for ten thousand. I'll see what I can do. Oh, all right, all right. Uh, give me that fountain pen. Uh, ten thousand, you say? Uh, plus fifteen hundred for the last canasta. Hey, hey, what's wrong, Augustus? There's a man over there. Where? In the shadow. Where? Here. Here I am, Senor Lyme. Look out, he's got a gun. Well, so have I. Stick him up, you. No, 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 you don't, Gus. Not with that You pistol. have the drone, Mr. Not Senor. with that pistol, Besides, I do not choose to try to shoot it out with you. That is not Barzini's way. Barzini? Then yeah. you're the bandit. That's right, Gus. He's the bandit. I'll put that gun away like a good... You're boy. darn right I'll put it away. I'll throw it away. No, Gus. You don't look much like a bandit to me, mister. Let's see how you like this. Ah. Oh, Gus! Gus! Emily! Gus, what have you done to him? He socked him in the kisser. That's what he done to him. Good work, my boy. Oh, it was nothing, really. Alfredo, Alfredo. Speak uh, to me, Alfredo. You hear that? She calls him Alfredo. Of course I do. That's his name. Well, it's a very silly name. That's all I can say. What about Hickenlooper? A silly name for a silly bandit. A silly bandit? That's what I said, a silly bandit. Oh, I know, but there's no reason to hurt him. He had a gun, Emily. Oh, well, how could he be a bandit without a gun? You don't think he'd shoot anybody with it, do you? But he was holding you to ransom. Nonsense. He just wanted somebody to play his guitar to. Oh, Alfredo. Sweet. Speak to me, Alfredo. No, thank you. It hurts to speak. I think I will just lie here for a while. Emily, I put it up to you squarely here and now, Emily. You're going to have to choose between us. What do you mean, choose? It's that man or me, Emily. Now you're being silly. Emily, I think Gus has a right to know your intentions. Intentions? I intend to get married. That's my intention, and as soon as possible. But who to? Here, Alfredo, just let me put this under your head, then you'll be more comfy. Oh, Gus, you are an idiot, aren't you? But at least you don't smell of garlic, and besides, I've always loved you. Gee, Emily. Gus. Well, all I want to know is... Uh, hey, Lime, where's he gone to? Harry. Oh, Harry. He seems to be running away. He'd better not slow up. Lucky the banks are closed. Come on, we've got to get into town and stop payment on some checks. Emily. Now, you just lie there, Alfredo. You'll be all right now. I just wanted to ask you something, Emily. Yes, Alfredo? When you get back to America, Emily, will you ask Betty Grable to send me a picture? returns in just a moment. And now, Harry Lyme. 
So much for that little flutter in banditry and romance in sunny Sicily. I have nice fat checks from Gus, Emily, and Mr. Hickenlooper. But a check isn't much use unless you can talk a bank into giving you money. I couldn't stop to talk. Should have taught me a lesson at that. In a love affair, I mean a real romance. Two is company, and the third man is a crowd. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob. I thought I would talk to you about Lee Bowman like I promised. Lee Bowman was born in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio in 1914. When he was uh, an adult, he uh, dropped out of uh, the University of Cincinnati Law School at, and then decided to uh, enroll in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. He was spotted by a Paramount Pictures agent and went to Hollywood in 1934, but was not used at first. Instead, he worked as a radio singer and appeared in stock plays, including The Old Lady Shows His Medals. Bowman eventually made his film debut in I Met Him in Paris in 1937 for Paramount. He worked at the studio for a while, then RKO, before moving to MGM. And he moved to MGM because for lack of leading men, who mostly all the A-listers went to war, Lee Bowman was considerably over, older than the others by 10 years. So he eluded the draft, and he capitalized on being the leading man by 
uh, being in such movies with Rita Hayworth as the cover girl and Jean Arthur in The Impatient Years. According to the film writer at the time, the Hollywood career, his Hollywood career was had not been spectacular, but was gained him a large following, following, and he was signed with Columbia Pictures, the home of the Three Stooges. Uh, the Impatient Years was a hit, and Bowman was uh, described in late 1944 as now a very hot commodity in Hollywood. However, he never quite progressed beyond supporting female stars, and his status as a leading man faded. And he was also in the Abbott and Costello film, Buck Private. He played the heavy in that, and the romantic lead in that smashed Bowman in the face uh, and knocked him down to try and teach him a lesson because he was such an irritant on the film of Buck Private. That was only in the role. He didn't actually get hurt, okay? <laughs> and Bowman uh, was a much-in-demand radio actor. He also worked on Broadway. He was the original actor who played Lucio Ball's husband in the audition program, serving as the pilot for My Favorite Husband. And uh, he didn't get the role because uh, he was not available to do the series. And so the lead went to Richard Denning. Uh, the series would later become, of course, I Love Lucy. And he also uh, made his debut in the Silver Theater in 1950. did a lot of radio work and also television with Robert Montgomery Presents and Playhouse 90. On November 16, 1950, he starred in Suppressed Desires on the Nash Air Flight Theater. Never heard of it. In the 1950s, she became a television second Ellery Queen, stepping into the role after the first actor, named Richard Hart, died unexpectedly of a coronary. Bowman hosted the short-lived game show, What's Going On, on ABC in 1954. And uh, he had a media career later on, and uh, when he passed away, his son of the same name took over that media company, and uh, his father's role. So enjoy Lee Bowman and Susan Hayward in this uh, version of this, The Saint. Now, this doesn't exactly follow the format of uh, Leslie Charteris's character of The Saint, and Richard Bowman doesn't play it as an Englishman, which we all know the saint was. He was English, and so was the writer, Leslie Charteris. But Bowman does a fairly good job. It's not exactly flippant like um, what would become Vincent Price's trademark in The Saint, but uh, he gets through the role fairly well. It's just not, doesn't feel like The Saint, but I think it's a different take, and um, I want to thank Suspense for doing, or at least trying to do, a Saint show. But enjoy it for what it is, and I'll see you all back here next week. God willing, and the creeks don't rise.
This is the man in black. Here again to introduce Columbia's program, The Paint. Our stars this evening are three. In order of their appearance, they are Walter Hampton, one of the theater's proudest names for two generations, and Susan Hayward and Lee Bowman, two of Hollywood's brightest younger stars. The story called The Dead Sleep Lightly by John Dixon Carr is tonight's tale of Suspense. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series, our tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so, with the dead sleep lightly, and with the performances of Walter Hamden, Susan Hayward, and Lee Bowman, we again hope to keep you in suspense. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Meadowvale Cemetery. Not far from New York. Meadowvale Cemetery. On a dim gray morning in early April, when rain forms a mist across leafless trees and white gravestones. You see, over there, the group of silk-hatted gentlemen, each with his protecting umbrella, gathered around an open grave. You see the clay soil freshly dug. You can hear, perhaps, the creaking of the fort as the coffin is lowered into its everlasting house. And the droning voice of the clergyman. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Live? Quiet, Mr. Templeton, please. What's wrong with old Templeton? Please, sir, remember where you are. She's not alive, I tell you. She's not alive. It might seem a long distance, that. From the Cosmopolite Club in Gramercy Park on the following evening, when that same well-fed man, as hard and unemotional as a diamond pin in his tie, hurries up the steps into the club and... What? what? Uh, yes, Mr. Templeton? Tell me, Mr. Wilmot in the club, do you know? Uh, yes, sir. Don't you see him? See him? Where? In the lounge over there, sir. Sitting by the fire. Yes, yes, of course, sir. I'm a little upset. You're a good fellow, Henry. I won't forget you. Thank you, sir. Excuse me, sir, but... Uh... Aren't you going to take off your hat and overcoat? Never mind my hat and coat. Just tell me one other thing. When I came into the club, was there anybody following me? Following you, Miss Templeton? Yes, a woman. A woman with a long skirt and a heavy black veil. <laughs> there aren't many women who wear that kind of dress nowadays, sir. Look out into the street. You see anybody? No, sir. There's just... Uh... What's that? Oh, that's only the old street musician, sir. He doesn't mean any harm. I won't have that tune played, you hear? I'm used to getting my orders obeyed, and I'm going to have this one obeyed. Here's the money. Go out and tell him to go away. Yes, sir, if you insist, but... Uh, do as you're told and don't ask questions. If anybody wants me, I shall be with Mr. Wilmot. Very good, sir. <laughs> Down for a minute? Not at 
call. Pull up a chair. Some coffee? No, thanks. I'll get down to brass tacks right away. Yes, you, you always do. I've noticed that. Well, I'm a pretty self-sufficient kind of a fellow, Wilmot. I made a name for myself, even if I do say it myself. But, well, the fact is, I need advice. Hmm. Successful publisher asking advice from one of his own authors. That's something new, isn't it? Now, look here, Wilmot, I'm serious. All right, all right, I take it back. What's on your mind? You've studied what we'll call the supernatural, haven't you? I've lectured and written books about it, yes. And did you ever meet a, a ghost? No, I can't say I ever did. Have you? It might only be my own imagination. This is what scares me. You get on in years, you utterly hardened, and you don't take enough exercise, and you think something ought to be done about your waistline, but you never bother. You see, Wilmot, I went to a funeral yesterday. You did? Whose funeral was it? The person who died has nothing to do with it. It was old Simpson of Harley and Sons. He thought it was only decent to make up a party and go to the funeral. I took my secretary along, a girl named Molly Carroll. I'm leaving for Washington tomorrow. Besides, I'm moving house. So there was a lot of work to do. But I couldn't stand. But that infernal cemetery in the rain. And we must have gone in by the wrong gate. Because we were in a neglected, desolate part of the cemetery... The rank grass grew over the grave. You'll oblige me, Miss Carroll, if you first find out the proper directions about places. You've come in the wrong gate of the cemetery. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Templeton. I thought that. But you thought doesn't matter now. This is the wrong part of the cemetery. My shoes were absolutely ruined with wet clay. Well, it isn't doing my own shoes and stockings any good either, Mr. Templeton. If there's been any damage to them, Miss Carroll, I'll replace them. You never found me ungenerous, now, have you? Well, not exactly ungenerous, no. I'll pay you the compliment, Miss Carroll, saying that you're the best secretary ever had. Thank you. Yet you want to leave me. Yes, I... I want to get married. That's what Mr. Barnes is telling me. And who is this paragon of yours? What does he do? Does he make any money? Well, Frank's a radio technician. He's not very wealthy, I'll admit. Wealthy? A radio technician? I bet he doesn't make as much as I pay you. Yet you want to get married. Well, is there anything very strange about that? Yes, if it interferes with your career, if it... Good Lord. Look at that. Look at what, Mr. Who's there? Where I'm pointing. You mean that? It's only an old gravestone covered with weeds and brambles. I haven't seen that grave in years. It looks rather neglected. It is neglected, isn't it? Will you go closer, please, and read the inscription? Mr. Templeton. Do as I tell you, please. Let's say, let's see if I can get some of these weeds aside. It says, Sacred to the memory of Mary Ellen Cleaver. Born September 5th, 1892. Departed this life, March 25th, 1919. Thou shalt still be adored as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will. If you lower that umbrella, Mr. Templeton, you'll get soaking wet. Sentimental crash. But she always liked it. She always liked it? Mary Ellen Cleaver. Did you know her? Very well indeed. She was my wife. Your wife? But I never knew you were married. Neither does anybody else. Where's my flask of brandy? What have I done with it? It's in your hip pocket, Mr. Templeton, but 
Do you think that's very wise? You've already had more than enough. Whatever I do is wise, Miss Carroll. Well, we were married very young. She was a nice little thing. I was fond of her, yes. But, but she couldn't have helped me. I'm not a snob, but she wasn't in my class. No style, you know. No manners. No, no education. Indeed. Could I have introduced her to the friends I was making? No. Wouldn't have been kind to her. She didn't even want to go to the places where I was invited. She'd sit at home and say, What was it like? Did you have a nice time? What was Mrs. So-and-so wearing? And she loved me. I'll put that to her credit. But... You left her? I thought it was the kindest thing to do, yes. She went away. Then I heard she'd had... Had what? Nothing. Doesn't matter. Well, there was a war on. I attended the peace conference in Europe. Never even knew she was dead until I heard some friends had buried her. I always promised to call her up. She said she'd come back to me if I did. Well, you couldn't call her up now, Mr. Templeton, even if you wanted to. I suppose not. But I was fond of her. I wish there was something I could do. But you could have her grave cared for. Have some flowers put on it. That's it. That's an idea. She'd have liked that. Can you take care of that for me? I'll look after it tomorrow morning, Mr. Templeton. But how will they ever be able to locate the grave? must be thousands in this cemetery. Well, each grave has a number, you know. Cut into the stone so you can identify it. This is number 1212. 1212. Sounds like a telephone number, doesn't it? Yes. Doesn't it? That was A01212. Poor girl. I was fond of her. Please, Mr. Templeton, come along and... And please, no more brandy. You've got a funeral to attend. Oh. You were sitting here in the Cosmopolite Club. Yes, but I wasn't sitting in the club last night. I was on my way home. And why should that scare you? I don't know, but it did. I'd been jumpy all day. That infernal number kept running through my head. Meadowdale, one, two, one, two. Have you ever seen my house? Yes, it's that big sham gothic place on Riverside Drive, isn't it? Yes, big and dark and drafty like a mausoleum. I told you it was moving house to an apartment downtown. But there were some papers there. I had to get out of the safe in the library to take with me to Washington tomorrow. I knew the servants would be gone, of course. But I hoped Mrs. Bloom, that's my housekeeper, would still be there. Then, when I went up the park, about 6.30... Middlevale, one, two, one, two. Home last year, after all these years. Home? This 
big, ugly picture gallery? It's been a home to me, sir. I've treated you generously, haven't I? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I've got several hours work to do, Mrs. Room. A whole safe full of papers to thought over. I'm going to the library and... What's that you're hiding behind your back? I'm not hiding anything, sir. All the same, what is it? It's only a music box, sir. I found it in the attic when the moving men were here. If I hadn't known there were... Well, no ladies in your life, I'd have said it belonged to one of them. I love to hear them, sir. May I? Mm. Yes, sir. If they don't want me to smash that music box, turn it off. Yes, sir, I'm sure I never... I'm going to the library. If you can find any sandwiches and coffee, bring them. Yes, sir. Excuse me. Same old library. Same old Crawford desk. There's the Venetian mirror she bought for you. Look at yourself in the mirror, Templeton. Admit you can't take it. Admit you can't work here tonight. Admit you've got to have lights and music and... That's it. Go out for dinner. Telephone Wilmot. Is that the phone? Oh, yes. Good. Here it is. Hello, hello. Yes, sir. Come up, please. I, uh... Come up, please. I want, uh... Head of air 1212. Head of air 1212. Wait, what the devil's name am I saying? Please, sir, I want... Hello, my darling. I knew you'd call me when you needed me. Who's that speaking? Who are you? Mary Ellen, dear. Don't you recognize my voice? You're not Mary Ellen. You're sick. Mary Ellen is dead. Yes, dear. But the dead sleep lightly. And they can be lonely, too. And now that you do need me... I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I'm coming back to join you, dear. It's not easy, but I'll be there by the time the clock strikes seven. I'll wear a veil because I don't look very pretty. I won't send it. I won't listen to you. I, I won't. Why, my dear, remember, when the clock strikes seven. Mrs. Will, Mrs. Will. Mr. Templeton, what on earth is the matter? Who's been playing tricks on me? Tricks, sir. I don't understand. Who spoke to me on this phone? But, sir, nobody could have spoken to you on that phone. Nobody could have. What are you talking about? That phone's disconnected, sir. Disconnected? Yes, sir. The man came here this afternoon and took that little metal box off the wall. And rolled all the wires up and put everything on the desk there. Said he'd be back tomorrow to take it away. Mrs. Broom, that's impossible. Look for yourself, sir. You're standing in the middle of the room holding that phone, and the wires don't lead anywhere. That, that's true. So you couldn't very well have talked to anybody on the phone that wasn't connected? How could you? I tell you, I got the operator. I heard it ring. I talked to... to someone else. Oh? And what did that person say? She said... She'd be here to visit me. Then... Today, I've walked past that house 50 times, a hundred 
muster up enough nerve to go in. I couldn't do it, but I've got to go in there. Why? It's those papers I've got to take to Washington. Send somebody else to get them. I can't do that, Wilmot. It's confidential information for the government. I, I've thought of everything. I, I've even bought a revolver, see? Oh, for the love of heaven, man, put that gun away. You want the other club members to think you have gone insane? Then I thought of you. You know all the tricks to fake spiritualists. You've written about it and lectured about it. Ah, which reminds me, by the way, that I'm lecturing before the Acropolis Club in about 20 minutes. You've got to break that engagement, Wilma. Why? Because you're going with me to my house tonight, now. It's oh, impossible, old man. Now sit quietly and listen to me. I'll go with you willingly tomorrow morning. That's too late. I'm taking an early train to Washington. Well, then wait until I can get away from the lecture. Say, uh, around midnight. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take a taxi and join you as soon as I can. That won't do. I've got to know. Know the answer now. Do you understand? Aren't you being a little unreasonable about this? Unreasonable or not, I usually get my own way and I mean to have it now. Well, then I'm afraid you'll have to go to the house alone. Besides, you know, Wilmot, you worry me. You sit there puffing at that pipe and looking at me out of those queer eyes of yours like a, like a young Satan. I've often wondered what you were really thinking about. If you flatter my intelligence so much, I was wondering whether you'd been quite frank with me. Frank with you how? About your late wife, Mary Ellen Cleaver. What about her? Well, after she left you, something happened that uh, well, you don't like to talk about. Was there by any chance uh, a child, a son, for instance? Or did you say a son? Yes. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then let's agree not to understand each other, shall we? Well, are you coming with me or aren't you? I tell you, man, I'll get there as soon as I can. All I can think about is the wet red clay in that cemetery. And the dismal grave in the rain. And what her face might look like if she raised the veil. And what am I going to see in that house? What am I going to see in that house? taxi moved along a certain street towards a certain house out of a bygone age. Nightless, black against the stars, surrounded by iron railings and with a path bordered by fir trees leading to the front door. Look, too, with the face of Mr. Patrick Wilmot when that taxi draws. All right, driver. This is the place. several times at our office. I'm Molly Carroll, Mr. Templeton's secretary. What are you doing here? Well, it's Mr. Templeton. What about him? Well, that's what I want to know. I was out with Frank, that's my fiancé, and when I got home, the girl I roomed with said that Mr. Templeton had been phoning and phoning all evening. She said he sounded drunk or something. He, he wanted somebody to go with him to this house. Evidently, I wasn't the only person he applied to. Shall we go in? 
Yes, but the whole house is dark. Suppose he isn't there. He's there, all right. You don't know men like Bert Templeton. Put up. I'll push the gate wider. Now, straight up the walk to the front door. I've got a flashlight. What are we going to find? Something rather unpleasant. I'd better warn you. How do you know? I have my ways of knowing, Miss Carol. Oh, look. What is it? That, that French window at the left of the front door. Yes. It's partly open. Well, there's nothing in that, necessarily. Templeton said he'd lost his key. He might have had to open a window. Oh, that's true. But... So you see it, too, do you? See what? There's a footprint across the sill of that French window. A footprint made in wet clay. Like, like the clay of the cemetery. So I should imagine. Will you go in first, or shall I? Into that dark room? I will not. Well, then stay here, please, until I get some lights on. No, wait. I'll go. Let me take your arm. All right, be careful now. Hmm, yes, I thought so. This room is the library. And there are more footprints of somebody or something walking in. They leave. Who's there? Who's there? It's only me, sir. Mrs. Bloom, the housekeeper. And what's the idea of standing in a dark room in the middle of the night? With what sounds like... It's only a music box, sir. I left it behind along with some other things and came back to get them. I've got my own key. I thought I heard a noise in here. But why aren't there any lights? The electricity's cut off, sir. It was cut off today. I see. Now, Templeton is here, or was here. He must have had some kind of light. If I turn this flashlight on the desk, maybe... <laughs> Be quiet, Miss Carroll. What is it, sir? I'm as blind as a bat without my glasses. Mr. Templeton, he's lying on the floor beside the desk. Oh, he isn't... No, he isn't dead. His face is the color of putty. I think he's had some kind of stroke. We'd better not take any chances. Mrs. Bloom? Yes, sir. Get outside to the nearest telephone and call for an ambulance. Tell him it's an emergency case. You're Mr. Wilmot, aren't you? But, but what happened to him? Ask a dead woman. I beg your pardon. Never mind. Hurry. Of course I'll hurry, Mr. Wilmot. What are we going to do? Now let's have a look around. Templeton seems to have been working at his papers by the light of a couple of candles, which somebody's blown out. We'll relight them. Uh, there's the desk. There's all the papers scattered round. Mr. Wilma, please. What happened to him? I'll tell you. As he sat there in the dim light of two candles, a ghostly figure appeared at that French window. It wore a long, old-fashioned skirt and a heavy black veil to hide the face. It walked toward Templeton, cracking graveyard clay. It stretched its arms to him like this. Keep away from me, please. Templeton couldn't stand it. He collapsed. And now, before the old housekeeper returns, would you care to hear how the whole trick was worked? Trick? What trick? Have you heard about the ghost voice that talked on a disconnected telephone? Oh, yes. Yes, he, he said something about it this morning, but I, I, I thought he wasn't himself. He wasn't, but he heard it. Remember Mrs. Bloom's story about the telephone man? Yes. Well, they don't send a man around to yank the whole apparatus off the wall, put it on the desk, and say he'll be back for it next day. This man from the telephone company was an imposter. The man from the telephone company was an imposter? Exactly. Oh, oh, look, he's moving his hand. He's trying to open his eyes. Isn't there anything we can do for him? No, there's nothing we can do till the doctor arrives. In the meantime, listen to me. All right. What did this imposter do? He took away the real phone and substituted a spirit telephone. 
You don't know what a spirit telephone is? No, of course not. It's an old device used by fake mediums. You see a telephone without wires standing on a desk like that one. You pick up the receiver and talk to the dead. Of course, you never really talk into the phone at all. But if you don't talk into the phone, then... Fixed underneath the desk is a tiny microphone with hidden wires leading to another room in the same house. That microphone picks up every word you think you are saying to the phone. Is that clear? I think so. Now, the dummy telephone is really a low-power radio receiving set. Somebody in another room can talk back to you after hearing what you say on the wired microphone. Then, Mr. Templeton... If Templeton hadn't rung Meadowvale 1212, then rest assured that same number would have rung him. Well, then the scheme couldn't fail either way. But, you see, there's one thing in this matter I haven't got quite clear even yet. And what's that? Tell me, Miss Carroll, just why did you work this whole trick? Why did you try to scare your father to death? My father? Templeton is your father, isn't he? That might be rather difficult to prove, Mr. Wilmot. Why, George, I admire you. Thanks very much. I'm flattered. Expressionless as ever. Eyes as hard and cold and blue and, and handsome as... Well, make your own comparison. But I knew you were guilty, of course, when I heard your fiancé was a radio technician. You can leave Frank out of this. Oh, you have scruples. Have I touched you? Nothing can touch me. Not since my mother died. Your fiancé installed the ghost mechanism and took it away today. He probably thought it was only a joke. He did. I swear he did. And the rest of it was plain enough. Who led Temple into the wrong gate in the cemetery? Passed that woman's grave. You did. Who was the only one who could have stolen the key to this house off that key ring he took to the office? You were. You needed that key to come and go as you liked and impersonate the two voices on the phone. Is there any need to go on with this? He killed her, you know. You mean... Templeton killed your mother? Oh, not with a knife or a bullet or poison. All he did was break her heart. And that's no offense in law. Steady now. Well, I've done what I wanted to do. I've thrown his whole rotten life to pieces. And there he is, gasping for breath on the floor. And I'm glad. I'm glad I'm... Oh, God, forgive me. He is my father. Does he know you're his daughter? No. Oh, of course not. When I went to work for him as a secretary... He hadn't even seen me since I was a child. But I got near him. I worked for years to get near him. No. I wish I hadn't. Now, look here. You've got to pull yourself together. Why? Who cares? The ambulance coming and maybe the police. What do I care? Tell the police what you like. My dear girl, you don't think I'll tell them anything. I'm merely an onlooker. An amateur Satan who doesn't believe in ghost horses. There you are. There you are. What's that? Something. His eyes are open. He's trying to get up. There he is. There he is. There he is. It's as though he could see something that we can't. What's that? He's got in his hands. It's a revolver. He had one at the club. He's putting it against his chest. Oh, stop him. Look out. Look out. Oh. He did love her after all. And now he's tried to join her. Oh, don't let him die. It's all right, Molly. You grabbed the gun just in time. If he doesn't die, I'll make it up to him. I swear I'll make it up to him. I'll tell you now, he's not going to die. Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen. What? Mary Ellen. What? But what? Mary Ellen. I was, I was just wondering, is there a ghost in this room tonight? Starring Walter Hendon, Susan Hayward, 
Lee Bowman. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday. Miss Hayward appears with the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, and Mr. Bowman appears with the courtesy of Metro Golden Mayor Studios. William Spear, the producer, John Beat, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer, conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's suspense. They were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents, and they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not, and I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. The telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read. Enclosed find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. A table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed, Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11, with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coenga Freeway and out Ventura to the Saddle Club, which pretended to be Old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlowe? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the Saddle Club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlowe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins and a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. With their twins, what's the difference? Funny. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Oh. Redmond, but you are wanted on the phone, sir. Uh, get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe. Uh, this is important. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dough-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped worrying about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is... 
its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth, in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Bring them up. The curtains parted on a stage set with an oversized full-length mirror, which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers, and a tall brunette with a wry, crisp waistline, who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline, and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine. And the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped a cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table. Just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good, except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as middle C, and the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that, and Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved down to the dance floor and George the waiter headed for my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Here you are, sir. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud... I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked, labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, it was one of the twins. Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She screamed. We got to get in. That door's locked. Break it down. But I... Get out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. Right, what wait, a minute. wait a minute. Hold it. She's all right. Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you two. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler. Take it easy. You're all right now. Come on. Sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. Then I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and, and someone grabbed me. A man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm -hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. Then locked the door. Got out through the window there. Who are you? I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's up? No. I can't imagine. But, gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing... My purse was stolen. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. Gee, there was nothing in it but $12 in my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. You don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm -hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. 
And then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm at all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. So since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheel so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement and that's no answer. All right. I, uh, saw you inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Do you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. <laughs> Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and a smudged slip of paper that read, Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out the Hazel team. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment, listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of a girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown as she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. Beside her, a burning cigarette sent a single plume of smoke into the still air. Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. You're, you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table with the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business, and he's anxious to sell it. 
All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective. Now tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know. Baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man. Not to pry into my personal affairs. And you'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try. Real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? Uh, my retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll uh, keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby. As I drove down the dark, winding street toward Ventura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up, but it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes and the spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. I followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but... I aim to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar? Huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. $12? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's 30 grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. 30000 Yeah. Redmond's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square in my joint over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. Uh, you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. <laughs> just a moment, we'll return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, tomorrow marks the anniversary of an important event in American history, the signing of the first peace treaty between the Indians and the Plymouth colonists. In commemoration of these events, CBS's Sunday night stars, Amos and Andy, will be found with a kingfish burying the hatchet deeper than ever in their hopes and dreams. And CBS's own Jack Benny will be back again tomorrow with his special guest, Van Johnson. Invite some friends over. Sit back and enjoy the Jack Benny program. You can hear Amos and Andy every Sunday on most of these same CBS network stations and Jack Benny over them all. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands.
The Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon. I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire, where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. From there, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand... A lot of dough. Didn't know I was shooting that high. And the, the twins. One, one, one what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One, one, oh. He's dead, isn't he, Marlo? Yeah. Yeah, Redmond, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlo. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming, you didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redmond, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm in a nasty jam. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that, I do. I've already met the gentleman. Right now, Redmond, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night, I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redmond. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too loud. It doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. Now, look, for the third time, Redmond, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from the car near the club, so I followed. I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that Marlowe is the truth, I swear. Would you do at the drop of a... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlowe. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse from Edie... If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blow and not spent his time putting out feelers. But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Yeah. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he had gotten away with. Exactly. But there, he ran into trouble because he was trying to get close to Beth. And in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And a dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. So she knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in the jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without her? I've got a model. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flappy little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. 
And right now that means fast to a phone and a call to Edie, who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. The nearest phone was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. Hello? Edie, this is Marlo. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,012 that was in your purse last night. Oh? And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Oh. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are, are you sold on this? I mean, about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. Driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I'd completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I'd parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I'd walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. But in the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, huh? Yes. But I didn't run too far. Because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. And when you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on, the door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there, near that closet, and don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave. Because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. But first, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Reedy? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick oak closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So twenty tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then, even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers, I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the Saddle Club. As I parked at the Saddle Club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trio of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. 
All right, Redman. The raucous this voice of Paul time. Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid do you think I am? Oh, oh that Cedar, I'm telling the truth. Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redman. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. No, you're not, Cedar. Uh, and if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go. Uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo, you know where the money is? That's right. I also know who took it. Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marla? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano and got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. I never saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from a piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you, Edie, have been posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it isn't. I... I guess it isn't that, Marlowe. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. That Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil, I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlowe showed up after her scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. went by before the police had everybody's story and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redmond and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlowe, it's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tough one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and... The girls, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah. Lisa came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. So tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in their dancing hands act. You see, when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, pour me one, will you? Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. Okay. I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left hand, Neil. Ah, then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed, she was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. From there, I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Uh, 
It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Mm-hmm. Cards, dice. <laughs> Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood. It was better than eight o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me, stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both her twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Oh, well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. With part of its star-studded Sunday nights devoted to shows named after great personalities such as Jack Benny, Lum and Abner, and Amos and Andy, CBS also goes to famous fiction for one of the brightest, most dramatic of its Sunday galaxy, The Adventures of Sam Spade. Created by the master hand of Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade cuts a new and deadly caper with mystery, murder, and adventure on most of these same CBS network stations every Sunday. Join him tomorrow night. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Why should I advertise on radio? There's nothing to look at, no pictures. Listen, you can do things on radio you couldn't possibly do on TV. That'll be the day. All right, watch this. <clears throat> okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream to the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue them out.
Now, you want to try that on television? Well... You see, radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Doesn't television stretch the imagination? Up to 21 inches, yes. Who listens to radio? Only 150 million people. Star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Dear Dan, I know all about your Box 13 ad in the Star Times, but I'm writing to you as a friend to come and see me. As you know, I'm teaching at Riddell College, not too far from where you are. Frankly, I've got a problem. I don't know whether it's anything... Sort of personal. But, well, will you come to see me? Bob Lamb. Yeah, it was a personal problem, all right, at first. Then the whole thing got tangled around. Up to my neck. And now, back to Box 13 and Dan Holliday's newest adventure... The Professor and the Puzzle. Maybe it'll be a kind of a vacation for you, Mr. Holliday. Could be, Susie, but somehow I have a habit of running into trouble or it runs into me. Well, why don't you be careful, then? Oh, now, who has fun that way? Remember that old saying, never trouble trouble until it... Oh, no, that's <laughs> wrong. It's, it's, it's never trouble trouble until... You... No, it's... Ne... Tell you what, Susie. You keep working on it. I'll be back in, say, say a week. Riddell College in the northern part of the state was one of those little places where classes are more important than football, and education is still the prime reason for the buildings being there. I drove to the campus, found the teacher's club where Bob stayed. He, he was a bachelor. And later at dinner... I don't know, Dan. Maybe all this is silly, but... Well, I thought perhaps you could help. Well, I can't unless I know what's troubling you. Well, I... I was engaged to be married. What? Who changed whose mind? Evelyn. I mean, she changed hers. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob. What happened? Well, I don't know, Dan. Everything was fine for a while, and then... Poof! It's all off. And you don't know why? No. Well, did you say something? Do anything? Not that I know of, but... But what, Bob? Listen, let's forget it. I almost sent you a wire telling you to forget my letter. But you didn't. Which means you've got something else on your mind. Want to spill it? All right. But don't let Evelyn know I told you. Well, of course not. Well, everything was fine, as I said, until... until her uncle committed suicide. Suicide? Oh, I'm sorry, Bob. Now she's going to marry Ed Macklin. Oh, now, wait a minute. Her uncle killed himself, and that makes her break her engagement with you and tie up with this Macklin... Doesn't make much sense, does it? Not enough to do much good. That all you know? Yes. Just a day or so before... before he died, Evelyn sent back my ring. Just like that, huh? Oh, there was a note, but it wasn't an explanation. Just that she thought it wouldn't work. No hint of that before Uncle's death. None, Dan. Absolutely none. That's what's got me stumped. But I could understand it if... if it wasn't Ed Macklin. 
He's lots older than she is. Why, it was a kind of a joke between us that he... Who is, uh, who is Ed Mackman? Well, he was her uncle's assistant. Assistant? <laughs> I'm making this as clear as a mud puddle. But Evelyn's uncle, Professor Gardner, was professor of mineralogy. Macklin was his laboratory assistant. Oh, oh, oh. And that's all I know. You sure? Well, of course. All right, now the $64 question. Why did Professor Gardner kill himself? Dan, believe me when I tell you he didn't have a reason in the world. Not a single reason. Well, that made as much sense as double talk from Alice in Wonderland. Bob stuck to it, too. The professor Gardner didn't have a reason to kill himself. Evelyn, it seemed, had been raised by him. He was like a father to her. He was respected, well-liked, famous in a small way for his pamphlets and articles. And I got an explanation of his specialty later from Bob in his rooms. He was a crystallographer, Dan. That means he, he studied the crystallization of minerals. You see, each mineral has its own particular crystalline formation. Salt, for example, as common table salt, crystallizes in a particular way. Galena, we used to call it the crystal in the old radio sets, you remember, that has another form of crystallization. Well, Professor Gardner was an expert. Well, was he working too hard? I don't think so. It was never work for him. Oh, I see. Well, what do I do now? I don't know. I, I thought maybe you could... Well, I guess it's hopeless. Look, Bob, uh, is it certain that Professor Gardner killed himself? What do you mean? Well, you said there was no reason for suicide. There wasn't. Would anyone have wanted to kill him? No. You're sure, Bob? I said no. Everybody liked him. Maybe somebody didn't. I didn't know of anyone. And suddenly Evelyn breaks off her engagement with you just after... Now, look, Dan, I'm sorry I got you up here. I, I guess I was stupid to write to you. Go back and forget the whole thing. You're afraid Evelyn's involved. I'm not. That's what's in the back of your mind, but you're afraid to say so. I said I'm not. Okay, 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 Bob. Still want me to go back? Well? No. Now you find out what you can, Dan. Without getting anyone in trouble. Trouble has a bad habit of popping up. I don't want it to. But you still want me to stay? I guess so. All right. But get this straight, Bob. I am not a detective. What do you mean by that? If I find anything fishy about this, I'll have to call the police. They've already been in. All right. I'll start from here. For the rest of the evening, we sat and talked. Bob was nervous. He wanted me to help because... Well, because he was in love with Evelyn. But he didn't want me to help because he was afraid of what might turn up. Well, what could turn up? <laughs> I found out. It was the next morning that I put in a call to Lieutenant Kling. Waited a half hour. Then ambled down to the local police department of Riddell. Oh, yes, Mr. Holliday. Lieutenant Kling called here. Told me about you. I asked him to. Uh... Name's Carson. I'm chief of police here. <sighs> yes, I know. What can I do for you, son? Well, if I'm butting in where I don't belong, just say so, will you? <laughs> Can't tell that till you spit out what's on your mind. Chief Carson leaned back, lighted a corncob pipe, and waited for me to start talking. I liked him. Behind that pink face was a good, shrewd mind. I told him I had come to Riddell, and when I'd finished... Uh-huh. 
You ain't a detective. No, not even a private one. <laughs> Just uh, helping a friend, eh? That's all. Well, can't say as I can tell you any more than Bob Lanham did. You sure? Yep. Found Professor Gardner in his laboratory. Oh, at the college? No, he had a little workshop back of his house. He was sitting at his table there, his own gun in his hand. Shot himself through the heart. Oh? Something sound odd to you, son? Yes, a man doesn't usually kill himself that way. That's right. Usually in the head. But that's the way it was, huh? Mm-hmm. Tell me, are you satisfied with the case, Chief Carson? Gotta be, son. Which means you're not. Now, look here, son. I'm only a small-town policeman, but I do my work the best I can. Yes, I know. And the thing that's puzzling you is... Why should Professor Gardner have killed himself? Uh-huh. Or if he didn't, who else would have? And there's no one else. Nobody stood to gain nothing. Wasn't a rich man? His niece? Mm, no, I'm sure she didn't. What about uh, Ed Macklin? Nothing to gain. Got it marked down as suicide, son. Just as dead end as a blind rabbit burrow. So it was. A dead end. I didn't press Chief Carson any further. He was shrewd enough to look for clues, and there just weren't any. I went back to Bob's rooms and stopped outside the door. Sounded as though a square dance were going on with hot music. I opened the door fast. All right, break it up. Come on. Come on, break it up. Bob, stop. Bob, get back now. Try it again, Lanham, and I'll turn it. Dan, get out of the way. Now, cut it out. Oh, let him come on. Get out of here, Macklin. For now, sure. But try to see Evelyn once more and I'll beat your head in, that's all. He's a little bigger than you are, Bob. All around. I'll kill him. Now, 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 take it easy. What happened? Well, I... I tried to see Evelyn this afternoon. She wouldn't talk to me. Macklin came in a couple of minutes ago and... Well, you saw what was happening. Yeah, yeah, I did. It's a nice eye you've got there. Shut up. Oh, now, look, remember me? I'm sorry, Dan. Okay. So that's Macklin. Uh-huh. Sit down, Bob. I don't want to sit down. Sit down. All right. Now, that's better. Now, how far do you think you're going to get by running into his fist? Now, listen, Dan, I've got to see Evelyn. I've got to find out what's going on. All right, maybe we will. Why is Macklin afraid to let you talk to Evelyn? I don't know, Dan. I take it he's, well, to use an old-fashioned word, a... Rival. I never thought so. But then... But then, just before her uncle's suicide, she suddenly switches to Macklin. But why? Why should she? If we find the answer to that, Bob, we'll find out a lot of things. Now, let's get a side of beef and fix up that eye. You're going to look pretty silly teaching class tomorrow with a shiner. But he didn't look silly in class. You see, he never got there. The next morning, I was pulled out of a nice, deep sleep by... Nobody home. Oh. Hello. Dan? Yeah, sure. Bob? Yeah. Dan, I'm in trouble. Great. How could you get in trouble at six in the morning? That's too early. It's not a joke, Dan. I'm in jail. Huh? For what? For killing Ed Macklin. I believe you, but look, haven't you got any alibi at all for last night? No. 
When you left me, I went for a walk to think things over. Ah, fine, fine. Everybody goes for walks when somebody gets killed. What time was Macklin killed? Just about the time I was out for that walk. Morning, holiday. Nice day. Oh, hello, Chief. You want some breakfast, son? No, no, nothing. Well, you got to eat, son. Got some ham and egg. Nothing, I said. Uh, bring it, Chief. He'll eat it. Uh-huh. You want anything? <laughs> Meaning me? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Oh, not at all. Looks bad, don't it? Yeah. Why did you arrest Bob? Well, you ought to know, son. You saw the fight they was having. One of the teachers living next door to Bob here heard it. And... Oh? Yeah. Well, looks like you've got a motive, Chief. Uh-huh. Macklin takes his girl. They get in a fight. I didn't kill him. Now, I want to believe that, but... Chief, I'd like to talk to Bob if I can. Huh? Oh. All right, I'll get the ham and eggs. Be back in maybe ten minutes. Don't you believe me, Dan? Oh, of course I do, Bob. Look, uh, how was Macklin killed? Knife. His own. Uh-huh. Now, listen, I've got to see Evelyn. What for? Because I believe everything goes back to her uncle and, and his death. How? I don't know. I'd like to find out. Nothing makes sense. Nobody had a motive for killing Professor Gardner. And everyone says he couldn't have killed himself because he didn't have a reason. So what have you got? What have I got? Bob, I... I haven't the faintest idea. Yet. And now back to The Professor and the Puzzle. Another Box 13 adventure with Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. I didn't have a thing. Not a thing to go on. Bob was in a spot, but a good one. He had motive, opportunity. Yet I didn't think he'd kill. I believed he couldn't. And I kept thinking that Professor Gardner's suicide had something to do with Macklin's murder. But how? A harmless professor kills himself. His niece suddenly breaks off her engagement and switches to another man, and that man is killed, and... And... Who gets the brass ring on this merry-go-round? Well, it was about time to see Miss Evelyn Gardner. I found the address, drove there, and... No one answered the door, but I heard someone in the back. So I walked around the side of the house, and putting some papers into an incinerator was a girl of maybe 24, 25. She seemed to be in a hurry, anxious to get it over with. Then she turned when she heard my steps. Oh, who are you? I'm sorry. My name's Dan Holliday. Oh, oh yes, I, I've heard Bob speak of you. Oh, go ahead. Finish what you were doing. Oh, well, I, I haven't got a match. I, I wanted to burn this, this rubbish. Oh. oh, here's a match. I'll light it for you. Oh, no. No, I can do it. Oh, it's no trouble. I said I'd do it. Well, all right. Here, uh, here's the match. Thank you. Whatever she was burning, she was anxious to get it over with. But she was a little nervous, and the match went out. Oh, please, have you another match? Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm afraid that was the last one I had. Oh, well, I'll have to get some. Will you come into the house? Oh, thank you. Did Bob come with you, Mr. Holliday? Bob? Haven't you heard? Heard? Heard what? No, no one's told you. Told me what? What are you talking about? 
Bob's been arrested for the murder of Ed Macklin. Oh, no. No, he didn't. How do you know? Oh, we've got to see him. That might help, but how, how can you be sure Bob didn't do it? Oh, he couldn't have. Then who did? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but it wasn't Bob. It has something to do with your uncle's death, doesn't it? No, no, nothing. How could there be a connection? I'm asking you. I'm going to Bob. I've got to see him. She was gone. I watched her drive away, then I hurried back to the incinerator. It was stuffed with papers. I dragged them out. Newspapers, wrapping paper, and then a little sheaf of receipts. Registered mail receipts for parcel post packages. And the signature of the sender was M.A. Gardner. Professor Martin A. Gardner. Now, why was Evelyn burning these? I looked a little longer and found something else. A carbon copy of a letter. It was was partially torn, and all I could read of it was, and this is the last job. Because it's the biggest, I want more than my usual fee. If I don't get it, you'll never get the finished products. And it was signed with the initials M.A.G. Martin A. Gardner. Okay, so I had a lead. But where would it get me? I found out. I didn't go back to the jail because I wanted to look a little longer at those papers I'd found. There was also a bank book, and the deposits totaled over $12,000. But it was in the name of Samuel Stoner. The bank was in the city, not in Riddell. Back in my hotel, I was trying to figure this out when... liable to go off. Yeah, it could. Mind if I sit down? I, uh, I wasn't expecting company. I'll sit down anyway. Okay. Now that you're rested, goodbye. In a hurry? That's right. Not so fast, sweetheart. Stay sitting. That's better. What do you want? What you've got right there. These? That's right. Push them across the table. Uh, Keep your hands on top. Scared? Not at all. Now, uh, light a fire in that grate. It's awfully warm, don't you think? It could get hotter. Go ahead. Light a fire in that grate and step on it. Oh, we're going to toast marshmallows, are we? Could be. Now, uh, put some paper on it. Oh, pardon me. You don't have a log with you, do you? I'll bring one the next time. Now, uh, throw that stuff on the fire. All of it. But I haven't looked it over yet. Throw it on. Well, what could I do? I threw all the stuff on the fire, watched it burn away. My company did, too. Watched it burn, I mean. It was a cool cookie. Then... Mm, Pretty, isn't it? I used to sit in front of a fireplace and read when I was a kid. But you didn't get to be president. No, that's true. Uh, Poke it up a little. See that it's all burned. It is. Good. Now I'm going. Oh, I was hoping you'd stay for dinner. We could put up a spit and roast a chicken. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot. You're to stop nosing around. Well, 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 I guess I have to, with that stuff burned. That was the idea. Yes, I suppose you'd have killed me as you killed Macklin. A shot in the dark, but it hit. His face, not so bad before, got twisted up. His fingers tightened on the trigger of his gun, but then 
He smiled. You'll have to prove it. <laughs> and uh, something tells me you'll never see me again. So long. Okay. Maybe the things were burned, but I remember one thing. An address. The address on the registered mail receipts where Gardner had sent the packages. And there was the name Samuel Stoner. Something told me Stoner and Gardner were the same and that that bank account was his. But why? Why was he paid that much money? What was he doing? Well, there was only one way to find out. Go into the city and go to the address written on those receipts. I drove into the city. The address was an office building. And there were 50 firms doing business in that building. I looked at the directory in the lobby. No good. How could I visit 50 places and get right answers? Then I saw him. The man who made me burn the papers. He went into the building. He didn't see me. I tailed him. Watched him get into an elevator. I got close enough to hear him say... Seven, please. Seventh floor. There were other people in the elevator. Chances are I'd make a lot of stops before it got to seven. Okay, the steps for holiday. Voices. Are we clear? Macklin's dead. You killed him, I suppose. Uh huh. But it looks like someone else did. It was a perfect setup for a frame. Oh, the niece business, huh? Yeah. Oh, uh, and there was another guy nosing around. He picked up some stuff the girl was going to burn. Who was he? Why didn't you bump? Look, two bump offs are enough. I only signed for the gardener job. All right. Here's your money. Uh uh. Now that I know what the gimmick was, I want more. Oh? Yeah. Uh uh. Don't reach for anything. <laughs> All right, I'll cut you in on this. That's better. Wait a minute. This other fella. Don't worry. I made him burn the stuff he took from the incinerator. You idiot, you shut I up. told you killing Macklin wasn't in on the deal. But he had this. I had to kill him to get it. You sure you're clean on the gardener thing? I know I am. I killed him with his own gun while the machines in that shop were running. Nobody heard the shot. Suicide. All right, now get out of here. Uh, you know, uh... I'm taking this with me. Put that down. Don't worry. We'll split on it. I just want to make sure there's no double cross. Now, uh, see you later. I stepped back, waited. Then as he came through the door, I knocked the gun out of his hand and grabbed it. Stay where you are. What the hell? So you were found Shut up. I'll take what you brought back. No. Hand it over, Cookie. Uh, Come on. Well, well, well. Okay, let's all take a trip to headquarters. Well, with those two sweethearts safely tucked away, I began to put the pieces together. I did some reading, then I went back to Riddell. Went back to see Bob. Dan, where you been? Playing tag with a man, Bob. Got a phone call, Holiday, from the city. You, you're letting me out? I think they are. Yep, no more free meals on the town, Bob. Come on. But, but Dan, what happened? We've got to go see Evelyn right away. And straighten out a few things. Now, 
Sit down. Both of you. Evelyn? Yes? I think I know the whole thing. Yes, I... I guess you do. What's everyone talking about? Why was I let out of jail? Because you didn't kill Macklin. And Professor Gardner didn't commit suicide. He... He didn't? How do you know? He was killed. Look, Evelyn... Bob would have been convicted of Macklin's murder if I hadn't... Well... Bob, Professor Gardner was doing illicit diamond cutting. What? Yes, yes, he had a perfect setup for it. The shop where he worked cutting and polishing his mineral specimens. The stolen diamonds were sent to him. He recut and polished them so they could be offered for sale. Isn't... Isn't that right, Evelyn? Yes. But... But Macklin... I think you'd better tell him, Evelyn. Ed Macklin found out. Then my uncle was killed, and Macklin knew why. You mean he threatened to expose your uncle if you didn't marry him? Yes. He wasn't sure until after... after Uncle Martin was killed. Killed by a hired killer. Hired by the man who was sending the diamonds to be recut. Professor Gardner was going to quit, but he received one last diamond. The biggest. He wanted more than his usual fee, or he would keep the diamond. But Evelyn, how does she come into it? Well, naturally, Evelyn wanted to protect her uncle's name. But Macklin's death prevented it. You see, Macklin found the big stone. And he was killed because he did. Holiday, did you have a nice vacation? Susie, it was just as if I'd never been away. Huh? You mean you didn't take a vacation at all? Well, not exactly, Susie. Oh. <laughs> you mean it was like a typical holiday. I... What? I made a joke. Get it? Oh. Good night, Susie. Next week, same time, through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures... Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville with an original story by Russell Hughes. Original music is composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. Production is supervised by Vern Carstensen. This is a Mayfair production from Hollywood. Watch for Alan Ladd in his latest Paramount picture. Hey, Abbott, what time is it? It's time for the Abbott and Costello Show. We're on the air for ABC here in Hollywood. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go with the Abbott and Costello Show. Hey, Abbott, could I go home a little early tonight? What for? I got to do a little work on my Sam Shovel Crime Laboratory. I'm going to mix some nitroglycerine with hydrochloric acid and TNT and heat the mixture on my stove. You dummy, if you do that, you'll blow the roof off your house tonight. Oh, no, I won't. What makes you so sure? I blew it off last night. <laughs> Costello, why don't you quit the same shovel detective business? You're not smart enough to be a detective. You're ignorant, illiterate, and uneducated. I am not uneducated. I went to school and I was smart too, Abbott And I'll never forget the day I was promoted from the third grade to the fourth grade The day you were promoted from the third grade to the fourth grade? Yeah How can you remember that? Because that morning I was so nervous I had to get my mother to shave me 
<laughs> and anyway, I'm not going to quit the Sam Shovel Detective Series. Our listeners are crazy about it. Here's a fan letter I got today, and it says, Dear Lou Costello, as Sam Shovel, the detective, you are the funniest guy I ever heard. When I listen to you, I shake the house with laughter. Last week, I laughed so hard, I thought the ceiling would cave in. I've come to the studio to see you tonight. Mr. Costello, there's a man here to see you. What does he look like? I, I can't, can't tell. tell. He's, He's all, all covered, covered with, with plaster. plaster. I figured out... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind him. What's your Sam Shovel story about tonight, Lou? Well, it's one of my oriental cases, Abbott. One of my oriental cases. I call it the case of the Chinaman who poisoned his own food... Or he committed chop suicide. <laughs> well, let's go on with the case. Oh, definitely. And now, the makers of Sludge Motor Oil present the adventures of Sam Shovel, private detective. But first, a word about our product. Motorists... Have you been changing your oil every month? Switch to sludge. When you use sludge motor oil, you will never have to change oil. Of course, every six months, you'll have to get a new car. <laughs> Does your motor ping? Switch to sludge and it'll pong. <laughs> then you can sit and watch your motor play ping pong. <laughs> the next time you buy sludge motor oil, fill up with its companion product, Naco Gasoline. And remember, friends, Naco Gasoline not only contains ethyl, it contains Mabel. We know because... <laughs> Mabel fell into one of the vats at the refinery this morning. So if you want extra mileage, use Naco Gasoline. Listen to what one of our satisfied customers has to say. Ah, duh, duh. I bought two gallons of Naco Gasoline before I left Chicago. Huh? When I got into Los Angeles this morning, I still had two quarts left. Thank you, sir. Uh, what kind of a car do you drive? Uh, who's got a car? I got a cigarette lighter. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Remember, friends, Naco is the greatest selling gas in the market. We've got to sell it in the market. The filling stations won't touch it. <laughs> and now to the adventures of Sam Shovel, private detective. <laughs> Yes, I'm Sam Shovel. Sam Shovel, private detective. They call me a private eye. I can smell a murder a mile away. I can smell a frame up. I can smell anything crooked. Private eye. They ought to call me private nose. <laughs> I'm sitting here in my little office. I notice a mouse crawling across my office door. It's a church mouse. <laughs> I open a drawer of my desk to check my equipment. There's my gun. There's my handcuffs. There's my binoculars. Comrade, I got the plans for the secret weapons. Those are my spy glasses. <laughs> I decide to fill out my application for a 1949 California driver's license. They're making the test tougher this year. To get a license, you have to learn to speak pig Latin. That's so you can talk to the road hogs in Hollywood. <laughs> On my desk, I notice a picture of one of the cleverest women crooks in the business. She was what the police call a top draw thief. <laughs> 
When I finally caught her, she had a garage full of top drawers. <laughs> she was a cute girl, but very shy. The first time I saw her, she dropped her eyes. I picked them up. <laughs> One was an agate. <laughs> she had a little turned-up nose, a real turned-up nose. Every time she sneezed, she blew her hat off. <laughs> she had a very clever racket. She'd make a friend of a guy, kiss him and give him a cold. Every guy she met, she'd give him a kiss and give him a cold. I finally arrested her for making friends and influencing people. <laughs> you work hard in this detective racket. I always remember my mother's advice. She said to me, Sam, if you want to get a job, remember the early bird catches the worm. I followed that advice for 20 years. I never got a job, but I got about 8 million worms. <laughs> he also gave me my brother, Pat, his advice also. He said to him, go west, young man, go west. He followed her advice and drowned. <laughs> he was living in Pismo Beach at the time. <laughs> Suddenly I see someone coming into the office. Hello, Sam Shovel. Hello, Lieutenant Abbott. Pull up a chair and sit down. I'm tired. I've been taking care of the Mollet Cup's horses. I've been working in the stables all day. Pull up a window and sit down. <laughs> Sam, I've been working on a fur robbery case. Somebody stole a mink coat, and the mink coats are hard to identify. I'm an expert on furs, Lieutenant. You know, there's two types of mink, male and female mink. Sam, that's a good thing to know. Yes, especially if you happen to be a mink. <laughs> Forget about the case, Sam. Tell me, how do you like my new suit? I had to admit to Lieutenant Abbott that he had good taste for clothes. Of all the detectives in town, Abbott has the best taste for clothes. He can chew up a vest and tell you what kind of gravy is on it. <laughs> Lieutenant Abbott, why do you always wear that big elk's tooth with a diamond in it? What's wrong with that, Sam? Lots of men wear a big elk's tooth with a diamond in it. In the middle of their upper plate? <laughs> This remark made Lieutenant Abbott smile. I love to see him smile. He only has two teeth. But he has the most beautiful set of gums I've ever seen. Well, Sam, you've got to admit I'm a self-made man. When I was born, I was very poor. I had nothing. Lieutenant Abbott is right. He came into this world empty-handed, and he had a head to match. Sam, I worked hard to get where I am. For 20 years, I've had my nose to the grindstone. Must have been a beaut when you started. <laughs> Never mind that. Sam, we've got to do something about crime in this town. Every day it gets worse. Yes. I know. Only last week, the girl next door, Mary Brown, had her good name ruined. Mary Brown? Mary Brown had her good name ruined? How did it happen? She married a guy named Hoopensnorter. <laughs> Hello, Sam Shovel, Private Detective speaking. Uh, Detective Sam Shovel, this is Constable Smith speaking. Uh, uh, um, uh, I've got an unsolved murder out here. I need your help. Uh, come out to the Jones Farm at once. Constable, I'll be glad to take the case. How do I get to the Jones Farm from my office? Well, now, let me 
me see, huh? Let me see. I'm uh, Jones Farm. Oh, yeah. You drive out the Cucamonga Turnpike, you get the schoolhouse, turn left, cross covered bridge on the county road. Now, watch yourself. There's two roads there. Now, one of them's pretty bad. So, you take the road to the right, you gotta watch for falling rocks, and mind the mud, it'll be up to your windshield. Why don't I take the road to the left? Oh, no, that's the bad one. <laughs> Ain't there a better road than that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just drive down Route 101. That's a fine road. Will that get me there? No, but it's a fine road. <laughs> Look, Constable, I can't work on a case unless I get to the Jones Farm. Uh, that's true, that's true, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what you do. Uh, say, uh, Sam Shovel, uh, do you know where the new Hollywood freeway is? Yes. Uh, tell me something, will you? Yes. When are you going to finish that darn thing? <laughs> Look, Constable... How do I get to the Jones Farm? Oh, the Jones Farm. Uh, well, well, where are you now? I'm in Los Angeles. By golly, I just happened to think. What? You know something? You can't get here from there. <laughs> What's up, Sam? It's murder. Come on, we're going to the Jones's farm. <laughs> Turn in this driveway. Lieutenant Abbott, you're a mighty reckless driver. You shouldn't drive that car so fast. Sam, it's my car. I'll drive it that way till it falls apart. <laughs> You've got to be careful what you say in front of these old cars. Uh, Constable, Hmm? Sam and I are here to investigate the murder. Hmm? Who's the victim? Oh, Farmer Jones. Uh, You'll find the body out there in the chicken coop. Well, good luck, boys. Well, so he went into the chicken coop. I started looking for clues. Sam, that big rooster looks suspicious to me. Look, he's got an axe under his left wing. I'll question him, Lieutenant. Mr. Rooster, did you kill Farmer Jones? (laughs) Yes, I did. Why? Well, today is Sunday, and all us chickens were just dying to have some real southern fried farmer. (laughs) (laughs) All the boys will be back to a curtain call in just a few seconds. The time it takes to tell you this.
Costello, you did it again. That Sam Shovel stuff of yours is getting doper every week. Really want to be a detective? Why don't you go to school and try to learn? Now, just a minute, Abbott. I happen to be a college man. You wouldn't even know what a college... You wouldn't even know a college if you saw it. Oh, yes, I would. All right, what is a college? A college is a big stone building covered with vines and surrounded by veterans and trailers. I, <laughs> I thought so. You never went to college. And I doubt if our writers did either. And talking about our writers are pretty nice guys. Our writing staff is headed by Pat Costello with Paul Conlon, Martin Ragaway, Leonard Stern, and Eddie Foreman. Our singer is Hal Winters... And our producer is Charles Vander. And we'll be back with you next Thursday night. Good night, Good night folks. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Listen each Thursday night at this time for another great Abbott and Costello show, produced and transcribed in Hollywood. Be sure to stay tuned for the outstanding entertainment which follows throughout the evening on this ABC station.